the idea that we're going to have this high-end prestige adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, except Mr. Hyde is a pterodactyl. I think it was just hard to sell that. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is my father, James Goldsmith. Jim, if you're nasty. (laughs) Dear old dad, it is the night before Thanksgiving and we are here recording my X-Men podcast, which I'm pretty jazzed about. Dad, how are you doing since we spoke last about five minutes ago? You know, nothing's changed much, son. Uh, everything's pretty much the same. A little bit nervous, but I feel pretty good about this because, you know, I have copious notes. So Yes, over the last week and a half or so, my dad has read almost every appearance of the character we are here to talk about today. Dr. Carl Lycos, hypnotherapist to the stars, best known as the high-flying Sauron, Weridactyl, vampire sartorial star, sometime ruler of the Savage Land when he's up to it. I did tell him he could skip the Tyri Weapon X, so we're mostly just not going to talk about that because here's the thing, none of it matters and you don't actually have to read it. And I haven't read a word of it. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what happens when we get there, but it's fine. Yesterday, Dad, when Mom got me at the airport, which was very kind of her because I got him very late, she was like, your father has been studying for this podcast. (laughs) he's doing homework for your show. And I was like, well, (laughs) he is retired. She's like, thank God, because he's been reading the comics nonstop. And I was touched. I was moved. I did make dinner for her last night. It's not like I didn't do anything. No, I know. I think her point was you're working your poor father to the bone. But here's the thing. She was like, I can tell he's very excited about it. And I am excited to have you on the show. I know that the Zala gang is excited to have you. I've gotten a lot of fan response ever since I first announced this was happening. It's pretty wild to be here together for episode 59 of Cerebro. <laughs> it's also pretty weird that we're in the same house. Dad's actually sitting in the room where I usually record when I'm here at my parents' house, and I am sitting up in my sister's childhood bedroom. Dad, I know you have listened to the show pretty religiously from the beginning, which has Mm -hmm. been really rewarding for me. (laughs) You know, if your own parents won't listen to your content, well, of course, mom will never, ever listen to a minute of this. But if, if at least one of your parents won't listen to your content, I do feel like that would be kind of sad. But you have listened to all gazillion hours of this content. I am up to the magic episode. I've listened to every minute through the Celine episode, and I'm almost done with the magic episode. That is a lot of hours of my show. So thank you, Dad, for listening. I appreciate it. Dad actually listens to the show sometimes when he is golfing up in Salem Center, where the X-Men are supposed to be. They're not, unfortunately, but that is where they would be. Did they exist? How do you feel about being on the show? Well, like I said, I'm a little nervous because uh, I have to say I'm very impressed by all of your friends and the pros who appear on your show. And I've never been on a podcast, but I'm I'm hoping you'll carry me on this one, son. So uh, and I'm very excited. 
because I, I love the fact that you do this. I, I, I do want to say from the outset that I'm very proud of you for doing this so well. And I'm more pleased that you seem to really have provided with this Discord server a place for people who really, really love this to talk about people, to talk about this comic book they love from a, from a perspective that maybe there are other discords that, that wouldn't really spend much time on. Yeah, I think that's, well, thanks dad. Um, You know, I mean, I think it owes to the way that I was raised on some level, which is, (laughs) you know, like. Yeah, I made you wicked funny. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's that, A. And then B, you also introduced us, me and my siblings, to, you know, all of this stuff that you liked, the the B-movies, the comic books, the sci-fi stuff. Um, And we took to it. And I think that we've always embraced the silliness. I mean, when we're done Mm -hmm. recording this, we might sit down and watch a Mystery Science Theater or something together. Like, that is kind of what we do. And I think that where my show has succeeded the most there are two things that I think I got from you. And one is the episodes with people like Spencer Ackerman or Sarah Century, where I really am picking apart the very complicated themes and the political implications and this, that, and the other thing of these so-called theoretically frivolous media. The other ones are the ones that like the Celine episode or whenever Anthony Oliveira is on the show or any number of other really funny guess where it's about loving how stupid this stuff can be, <laughs> you know? Let's go for that second vibe instead of the first. I think this episode is going to be more the latter. We are, as noted, here to talk about Dr. Carl Lycos, Sauron, a vampire pteranodon in jeans. Or shorts. Or shorts sometimes. Sometimes a kicky loincloth. It depends on his mood. There are at least two different banana hammocks yeah. during the course of his career. Mm-hmm. I have some notes on those. I mean, if you're in the Savage Land, I think it is entirely reasonable to go about your day in essentially a Speedo because it's pretty tropical. Yep. And it's not like there's anybody around to really say boo about it. I mean, you know, there's no mismanners of the Savage Land, I don't think. I think you're just kind of doing your own thing and... Kazar certainly is walking around in a thong most of the time. I'm going to say Kazar. That's okay. You're allowed to. Okay. Yeah. All right. I know it's supposed to be pronounced Kazar. I will never acknowledge that. I love that for you. And I'm not going to, Yeah. you know, I'm not going to criticize, but I'm saying Kazar. You should say Kazar all you want. It does make sense that it's supposed to be Kaiser. I get that now, but I didn't get that as a child. And to me, his name is Kazar. A.K.A. Lord Kevin Plunder, which is a truly astounding name to give the (laughs) blonde British aristocrat who becomes the hero of the Savage Land. I was talking about Kazar and Shauna the She-Devil in the Discord. I was trying to explain Shauna the She-Devil to someone in the Discord. And they were like, oh, she's just like a vet from America. I thought at least she would be from the Savage Land. I'm like, no, neither of them is from the Savage Land. They're white people from the West who crashed in the Savage Land and became jungle heroes. That's sort of how 
jungle heroes worked in comics for a really long time. That's how they worked in all pop culture. Yeah, in very, books, very in time. movies. In, I mean, I would say even Carl Lycos here is sort of a jungle villain in a similar mold. He is Argentinian, mm -hmm. but pretty white. Argentinian. I mean, the name Lycos would imply that he's European. Yes, but notably, whenever he uh, whenever he is actually trying to conquer the Savage Land, he's green. That so. is true. He's one with the people of the Savage Land, not meaning the actual people, but meaning the dino people. Oh, yeah. You know. Well, we'll get to it. We'll get to <laughs> it. So... <laughs> Before we dig super deep into, because of course there are untold depths to Plum with this character, but before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd love to hear a bit about your journey to the X-Men and journey with the X-Men. I know all about it, of course, yeah. but it might be fun for the listeners. There are some very dedicated listeners with like Google documents who keep track of the things I say, which is wild and I love that, but it's wild to me that that happens. I'm sure there are people who've pieced together your whole life from anecdotes and whatnot that I've shared on the show. But <laughs> in your own words, James Douglas Goldsmith, this is your life. Go on. Go well, ahead. Well, back in the olden times, the 60s X-Men, there's a shorthand kind of, oh, they're not very good type thing. And you've been more nuanced in your discussions. You, you correctly said it was getting better when they canceled it. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, when I was eight or nine years old, X-Men was a great comic book. And you were born in 1960. Yeah, I was born in 1960. So Kirby and Lee start bringing out their Silver Age Marvel superheroes in 1961. Right. And some of them were very, very popular from the jump. So by the time I was conscious of the world around me, the Marvel superheroes were very much part of the, the zeitgeist that a, a little kid would, would care about. Now, I loved the look of the superheroes and I loved comic books, but the only two superhero comics that ever caught my eye really were Spider-Man and the X-Men. I think it's because they were about young people. Mm -hmm. Like, I was obsessed with some of the other uh, superheroes, like gadgets and weapons. I remember being five and playing like I had Thor's hammer or... Captain America Shield, which obviously I got a frisbee for my fifth birthday. Right. And, yeah, of course. Yeah. But I wasn't interested in, in Thor or Captain America. I think it's because they were too powerful and not just too powerful as as like superheroes, but like as grownups. You know, Thor, when he wasn't being a Norse god, is like a doctor. A doctor. Yeah. And doctors were like super grownups, right? They, right? they were like, they had magical powers. They were really all powerful. No one could be a doctor you actually would see. <laughs> Captain America was worse. He was a military officer. Right, yeah. I mean, that's like the ultimate grown-up for a little kid, uh, particularly, you know, at the time. I liked the young ones. And I, I one thing I really liked about them was they were all, except for Warren, who was rich, they were all looking for work. They, they were all scrambling <laughs> to get a job and stuff like that because the only aspect of adult life I really understood, and Peter was always scrambling. Right. Well, because you started reading right around or right after they kill off Xavier, right? Well, that's the point. See, this is the key to this. When I become conscious of this comic book, it is a comic book about seven young people with superpowers. All right? Right. So there's four older ones and there's three younger ones. Right. 
The four older ones are Scott and Jean and Hank and Warren. And the three younger ones are Bobby and Lorna and Alex. I know that Bob, uh, Lorna and Alex come in during this period, but this whole span in my life is sort of mashed together. Well, you were a child, so yeah. yeah the key thing is that Charles Xavier was, I, I see I called him Xavier, but I'm going to slip and call him what I really call him, which is which Xavier. Which is Xavier. You always say Xavier. But Charles is dead. It's yeah. important that he's dead. Maybe the best story from my childhood is in X-Men 46. And X-Men 46 is about uh, Juggernaut, has come out of whatever psychic or magic prison Charles has put him in most recently. And he comes back and he finds out that Charles is dead. And he's devastated. I love Juggernaut. And I love him because he's such a rage monster. His whole reason for existing is to kill his brother. That's all he wants. And he's incredibly upset that his brother's dead because it means he can't kill him. And that's the whole plot of that comic book is this guy raging about because he can't kill his own brother. That, I mean, Charles would show up a lot in back of the book stories about how they became the X-Men, but he's not around. Right, because there's the backups there about how they all joined the team and and whatnot. Also, another thing. So let me tell you about this comic book from my perspective. First of all, I, I know when you had Sarah Century on, I forget what episode you were doing. But you, she was talking about how she's not crazy about Roy Thomas. I just, she didn't say she wasn't crazy about Roy Thomas. She said it's that he's the kind of guy who would have read Norman Mailer, which is fair. Yeah, we were talking about how Candy Southern is named after the erotic novel by Terry Southern and uh, the boys yes. of the well, time. Well, this particular nine-year-old boy would not have been aware of <laughs> the uh, reference to an erotic novel. But what I did like... <laughs> Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's erotic, but, you know, see, when I'm this age, right, my, I've been reading comic books for a long time because your aunt Anne, my big sister, had taught me how to read at an obscenely early age because we had a lot of time on our hands. Mm-hmm. We shared a room until mom and dad got a house when I was five and she would come home from school and she would teach me to read, which is why your grandfather's best story about us was coming home one day when I was three and we had the two beds in the room and we had two little chairs and my sister had a doll and the doll would sit in one chair and I wouldn't sit in one chair. And she had a, um, a little chalkboard and she would be the teacher and we would be the students. And my father comes home from work one day and he hears her say to the three-year-old, don't be silly. Of course you can. You can do it. The doll can do it. So just do it. Spell facetious. (laughs) And the attorney said, who, I think this is a little ambitious. I think he's struggling with cat, but you know, so I know how to read, right? And does, of course, now actually lecture yeah, at Harvard so, Law School. So it worked out. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, though, <laughs> I, I remember my mom got me a lot of comic books. And the reason was that, you know, I knew how to read, but I wasn't in school. And the books that my sister was reading were just too, even if I had the vocabulary, they were too uh, emotionally mature for me. You know, she's reading The Once and Future King. And I'm like, wow, they're right. I don't know. So my mom would bring home comic books. Now, when I'm a little kid, she being my mom, she brought home Classics Illustrated. So I had a lot of Classics Illustrated comic books. That's great. But by the time I'm like eight, my mom had gotten a full-time good job as an elementary school librarian on the other side of town. Which she did for the next... For the next 30-odd years until she retired. So she had that job for 31 years. Mm -hmm. So she's in the job, and her hours 
overlapped one exactly with when I would be at school, which was intentional, but meant that to the extent my mother had errands, she had to do them after work. She didn't have time on lunch hour to do errands. And anyway, she was on the south side of the city. And we were on the north side of the city, small city, but you know. Picture it, Framingham, Massachusetts. Jewel of Massachusetts. Framingham, Massachusetts. <laughs> Jewel of Massachusetts in 1965. <laughs> so I would go on errands. If she was going for a couple hours errands, I would go. And if we ended up at the drugstore, which is where the comic books were, and which was a pretty common stop when mom was doing a lot of errands, it would be likely that I might get a comic book as a reward for having, you know, shot my afternoon hanging around while she was doing important grown-up things. Right. And so, of course, now I'm picking the comic books. And the thing about X-Men in particular in those days is if you go back and look, the covers are absolutely great. They were trying anything to kind of jumpstart the book at that time. I, I, I know I don't didn't know that then. I, I know it by reading things Roy Thomas wrote decades later. So Roy Thomas himself actually went on a break. Mm -hmm. he, he was doing other things at Marvel, but he didn't write like issues 44 through 54. But he, they were doing things and he was still watching the book. And he got in some of the best artists imaginable for this book. Jim Steranko. Steranko on the Polaris stuff is really it is incredible. And I will tell you, issue 49 is a white cover with the five kids running. And it's also Polaris's uh, debut, as it happens. But mm -hmm. the kids are all running towards you. And it's really, really, it's just so arresting. It has unbelievable curb appeal. 48 also had curb appeal. It's purple. As they go on, you know, Steranko does covers. Uh, Barry Windsor Smith does what I think is his first comic book work, and he's doing covers, and they're really interesting. Go look at the cover of 53, and that's absolutely, that's just an absolute bang. One of the best out there. Co-creator, of course, of Zaladane, Queen of the Sun People. So As well he should be. I don't want to forget, before we get any deeper into the episode, so I arrived last night at midnight here in Westchester, New York. My mother was kind enough to pick me up from the airport in White Plains. We drove here and my father was thrilled to tell me about a gift that he had bought for me that will be arriving on Friday and which I am going to hang in my kitchen in a place of pride in Los Angeles because I have been setting up my new apartment in L.A. That's why there's been so much back and forth the last couple episodes. My dad was doing his Sauron research for this episode and came across an auction of original cell animation slides from the 90s cartoon, X-Men the Animated Series, and purchased for me the only cell featuring both Zaladane and Sauron. They sort of look like they're conspiring or like having a conversation. I haven't watched the episode in a while. I think they're actually not friends in that They're episode, not friends. He so. is, he's brainwashing her to get her. I watched this when I was trying to figure out where the cell came from. And <laughs> she's with Garak. And he says in that horrible, are we going to talk about his horrible voice? We will get there. The yeah, horrible there voice later, but... from the cartoon. We'll get there. Yeah, but, but you know, she... um. She's mad at him, and so he, he hypnotizes her and, and puts her out of the fuck. Well, it looks like they're having a key, so I enjoy it. They're just having a giggle together, and I am excited to see it in person in all its glory. I will post it in the uh, 
the thread when I post the episode on Twitter, I will post an image of this cell because that was it made me laugh out loud. And that was just very thoughtful. You're a thoughtful guy. Last year for the holidays, you bought me the first appearance of Betsy Braddock near Mint. And those yes. Captain Britain issues, there's like 10 copies left of each of those. <laughs> so that was wild. Yep. Um, yeah, that was a fun find. Yeah, but anyway, so to go back, to go back, to go back. Yeah, okay. Barry so Winter like, Smith was doing covers. Cover you were saying that there were all these great artists coming in. The other thing is, among the artists, so Werner Roth had been drawing the strip for a while, and mm-hmm. I'm sure Werner Roth was a, a, a terrific artist. I'm not a huge fan of his work specifically. He was splitting a lot of duty. Leave aside the work that Starenko did, which is incredible, which is like 49, 50, and 51, I think. But Don Heck was working on it. I imagine yeah. Heck wasn't any more talented than Roth. But one thing that Heck could do really well was he could draw beautiful girls. Mm-hmm. And the gene he drew is absolutely breathtaking. The, the prettiest girl on earth. And there's kind of a lot of cheesecake for little boys in the, you know, I'm not thinking about <laughs> sex then. I, 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 my sexual awakening comes later. I, that, that actually may come up if we ever get to uh, the dating Polaris is gay theme in this. Yeah. But in 48, Jean is a bikini model because they're all looking for work. Right. This is why we went back, because the period where they're all looking for work is after Xavier's dead and they're like all college age now. And they're like, shit, we better get jobs. Right. And Jean does get a job as a bikini model. Right. And she's like in six. Bikini- and, you know, I didn't know exactly why I thought this was just a very, very, very good comic book. But now I know why. <laughs> and like in 49, Polaris, you know, takes a shower and comes out in a right. robe and she's déshabillée, you know. She, so there's a little bit of cheesecake that's just, I'm not going to say titillating. Famously, Bobby has left before oh, she well, this finishes is my, showering. Oh, can we go to this now? Can we go to this? Yeah, now? we can okay, do this so now. Yeah. Here's, I, ever since, it was you and Anthony who did the ice thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that was my favorite. And I, I agree with everything you said about, you know, Bobby was never going to go. Well, here's the thing. All right. In 49, and, and you've talked about everything about Bobby, about how dating Polaris is gay, except this thing, but you and I have talked about it. Yeah, offline. At the time, it was sort of a, a, a trope in particularly rom- romantic comedies, but also uh, light dramas or romantic dramas that if a female character took a bath or a shower and comes out in a towel, or in like a robe, mm-hmm. she and the boy who's there where she comes out will end up together. Yes. Because once you've seen that, you got to marry her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to marry her. And, and so here's the thing. The reason I know it didn't quite strike me at the time, your sexual awakening was a, a John Byrne uh, mm-hmm. splash page of Warren. Well, right now, my sexual awakening was when I saw a cute movie that I haven't seen in 50 years. I don't know if it holds up. It was called The Assassination Bureau and starred Oliver Reed, Diana Rigg, and Telly Savalas. Diana Rigg hires Oliver Reed, who's some sort of super spy, but it's a period piece, and he runs an assassination bureau, and she's mad because he assassinated her dad or somebody. Sure. So she's hired him to have his assassins kill him, and he takes it because he likes the challenge, and shenanigans ensue. But at one point, Diana Rigg, who 
45 years later would play Lady Tyrell on Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. But would also be Emma Peel on the Avengers and inspire both Emma Frost of the Hellfire Club and the Jean Grey look in the Dark Phoenix story and all of that stuff. Yeah. She was famously hot chick is what I'm saying. As I'm being, I'm trying to be objective about this, but objectively, <laughs> she was the sexiest woman who ever lived. You know, so she comes out in a towel and Oliver Reed's there, the guy she hired people to, to kill. And it's like, oh, they're going to end up together. They're going to end up together at the end of the movie. Debbie Reynolds was always coming out of showers in movies. Debbie Reynolds loves a towel. Connie Stevens came out of a lot of showers. And I, I remember being stirred enough by that, and I was and perhaps 11, to go have a chat with my dad about, you know, what that meant. And, and it was an informative discussion for me. So that's the thing <laughs> for me. Here's the thing, though, right? Polaris is a smart character. Right. So... X-Men 49, Bobby has rescued her from an accident because she's been hypnotized or whatever. So Mesmero. there she is, mesmerized. Yeah, by Mesmero. So she, she's in his apartment in San Francisco. And clearly what's happened is she says, well, listen, I don't make the rules. I'm clearly this guy's love interest. So time to get naked. Better wash my brown dye off so he'll see me for who I really am. Get into his robe, which doesn't quite cover my doesn't entire quite fit me, so my fit me body you know? is a little bit and exposed. then we'll just get to that thing where you 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 take your sister's barbie and ken and you kind of mash them together yep. right? i mean that's that's just how it's gonna go and she walks out and poor girl bobby just like he had um just like she just was like he leaves when Jean comes in he has fled and that is so dating polaris's gay because the fact is nothing is ever going to go right for this guy in heterosexual relationships. Right, because nothing is more heterosexually erotic in the 60s than a girl walking out of the bathroom in a robe drying her hair. That's every movie. Yeah. That's the thing. And, and I know he didn't do it on purpose, but he ain't there. <laughs> so that's my dating Polaris is gay hot take. That's super gay because I can't think of another thing from the era in which a woman comes out of a uh, shower and her potential love interest has left. Has left. I mean, just, yeah. Just scarf. Because that's a critical scene yeah. in the oh, genre. Yeah. 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 So anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so Polaris is hot. Jean's hot. I, I did have a, a slight, you know, uh, interest in the cheesecake aspect of that. I'll, I'll own it. I'm a little Sure. Fan. Why not? And then what happens is... This thing turns into the greatest comic book imaginable because Thomas comes back and he gets Neil Adams to come over from D.C. Yeah. They get together for seven absolutely unbelievably great issues. Adams comes on board in 56 and they're still in the middle of this kind of stupid living monolith, living pharaoh guy thing, which is he's just a bad villain. But then they come up with three unbelievable stories in a row. There's this um, uh, Sentinel story, and the Sentinels are great. I mean, yeah. you've said, and you're right, that most early X-Men villains suck, but those guys are great. The Sentinels, Juggernaut, that's the good stuff in the 60s. Yeah, and then after they're done with the Sentinels comes Sauron. And Sauron is, let me, let me, I'm not going to say I love him, which is what most of your 
guests say about the character, but I love him. I, I really love him. <laughs> <laughs> I let my father choose a long time ago yeah. from the entire X universe, which character would you like to do? And he was like, I would love to talk about Sauron. Yes, I feel there that Sauron is is perfect for me because Sauron is at heart, while scary and cool looking, mind numbingly goofy, which is yeah. great. But before he's goofy, he's scary because before he's Sauron, in issue fifty-nine, which is the end of the Sentinels arc, the Sentinels have hurt Alex, or somebody had hurt Alex. He's hurt. Alex was protecting Lorna from the Sentinels because Trask had kidnapped, whatever. It doesn't really matter. So they go to Charles's Rolodex to find a doctor. For mutants. Yeah, I guess. And uh, Scott says something along the lines of, oh, well, he has a colleague who's a doctor. You know, not that kind of doctor, but okay. (laughs) And uh, he's a uh, doctor named Carl Lycus. So they called Carl Lycus. And at the bottom three panels, of issue 59 are the scariest thing I've ever seen. At least if you shrink down, remember I'm a lot smaller when I see this the first time. Right, yes. He's a hypnotherapist and he's hypnotized his patient. He's like, said, oh no, I'm not doing anything important. Uh, what, oh, you, you want to bring your uh, little brother over to uh, for me to treat him? Oh, friends of Charles. Oh, great, great. That'll be terrific. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, come on by. Except what's going on is this guy is like convulsing in agony under hypnosis while his mind is being manipulated and his energy is being drained from him to feed the therapist who is an energy vampire. And it's terrifying. He's much scarier in that than he is as Sauron. Well, he's played pretty straight as the scary doctor. You know, he gets to come on, he gets to be Sauron. And I love Sauron. He has two great episodes, and then Tanya, his love interest, he realizes he was about to kill her father, and then he was even tempted to hurt her, and so he flees to Tierra del Fuego, where he's from. She tracks him down before the X-Men can get to him, so he jumps off a a cliff to save her from him and dies a noble death. Yes. Because he, he realized he had become too evil. I just love them. And then actually, right after that, there's the first, what I would say is the first decent Magneto story ever because what happens is they go down to get his body they don't get it instead they go down into the savage land which is crazy because Tierra del Fuego is thousands of miles from Antarctica (laughs) so savage land is super big yeah it's a big big place anyway and they have an adventure with Kazar and and, then Warren gets in trouble with and Magneto and we meet the mutates Magneto has become much more interesting because he's building creatures, you know, he's playing the island of Dr. Moreau down there, and it's it's weird. Right. And it's a good plot. So I really dug it. I loved it. I loved Sauron. And then, you know, I sort of, they lost me a little bit for a while, because you've mentioned this once, and I agree completely as someone who was alive at the time. They went into reprint. Yeah. As soon as they go into reprint, the issues you're seeing And remember, here's the thing. I'm not going to see every issue, right? My big sister didn't read comic books. So the only comic books I had were the ones I had bought, well, that my mom bought for me. You know, the only comic books you were going to read is the comic books you had, which you would read over and over again. If you went over to another kid's house, maybe you'd read his comic books. Like when he came over to your house, you know, you'd read his comic books. But, you know, it's all kind of within this framework. So 
X-Men 25 might as well not have existed for me. That that was gone. And then the X-Men go into reprint and they go back, right? Right. This is 1970 when the book's canceled. 1970. And it's not good. And the reason it's not good is it, it plays into all the things I like the least, right? Which is Charles is in charge. He's an autocratic, older, super powerful, super rich guy. And these kids who all wear army uniforms, they're not wearing the cool costume. Right. Jean's not in our iconic dress, which, you know, is like, my God, what if Marlo Thomas really was a redhead? You know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the thing. This is the thing for the dress course. That dress was a real hot look in the 60s. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was. It just, that. <laughs> wow. That's blistering. So here's the thing. He's running a military school. Right. Now she's back in her blue and gold pajamas because yeah, yeah, yeah. the and series not, again. And, you know, they're all, and he, and, he, and he tells them what to do and he dictates and the villains all are terrible. And so they kind of lost me. Now, about the same time, though, you know, I'm getting a little older. And when I was around 12, your aunt was in a play and I had to kill time. I wanted to see the play. But we were in Boston and I got to go to... Brentano's, and this is back before there were Barnes and Nobles or Borders. Brentano's was a superstore like that, right? Mm -hmm. Just like a glorious bookstore. I mean, there was nothing like it in my world. Any other bookstore I'd ever been into would have been small and run down by comparison. And I saw a coffee table book, and it was about the EC comics of the early 1950s. And I was a big Mad Magazine fan, and I knew who Harvey Kurtzman was, and he had created Mad, which was a, a comic book back when when it started and he was with EC. It was the only survivor of uh, Frederick Wertheim and the congressional movement to- Seduction of the, the Innocent stuff. Seduction yeah. of the Innocent. He had written a story in Frontline Combat Number 5, which he had illustrated himself. And it's about a soldier who's been wounded with a, a shard from a, an incendiary device that had just gone in and had pierced his belly in a, a vital area. And he reminisces about the vagaries of human life while he bleeds out. It's called The Big If, and I was absolutely transfixed. And I became a huge fan of EC for life. That became a big part in terms of pop culture of things I love. EC comic books, I loved because of that book. Years later, it started to be something you could get. You could get reprints of EC, but you couldn't write then. But, you know, comic books, I was saying, okay, the kind of comic books I want to read are these short story type comic books, because it's hard to mm -hmm. keep track of the superheroes and things like that. And X-Men's not so good. X-Men's gone, and if you can't guarantee that you'll get the same book every single month, because yeah. you don't have a subscription, it's right. like, does my mom take me to the dime store on this day? And I didn't really understand what was going on, to be honest with you, in terms of the continuity that they'd gone back to like issue 12 or anything and that they were running sequentially. There. Right. You're just like, who's this asshole in the chair? I don't know. Yeah. I've never Pretty heard of this much. guy before. <laughs> I, I didn't like him. Not as much as Leah Williams did not like him. She just liked Right. Him no, fair. But um, see, I do listen every week. You do listen every week. But they got me back. And I'll tell you how they got me back. It was, I believe, issue 81. It might have been 82. It's a reprint of, I think, 33 or 32, depending on what that number is. And it is a close-up of Juggernaut, and he's just staring at you. And you have said that your favorite 
Kirby hat is Galactus, and you know everybody's got his own taste. Uh, I think Hella might be my absolute favorite. The greatest Kirby hat for me is Juggernaut's hat. I love his hat. What I like most about his hat is, unlike Magneto's hat, where you know it's, he's cooler when he's not wearing his hat, right? Because he's cool looking. It's the source of his power. It's awesome. It encapsulates his rage it's i love that hat. i guess it is a kirby hat i don't i've never really thought of the juggernaut's helmet as a kirby hat because it doesn't have any pointy things coming off it which is always what i think of it's completely smooth and rounded but you know what it is a jack kirby design and it is a very distinctive hat yeah with magical powers of you get his hat off yeah a lot of trouble so anyway he's in deep shit i got that and i'll I'll tell you that i think many many years later when i started to collect kind of high grade Mm-hmm. x-men copies that's the first one i got that was the first thing i've got that later on i got slabbed and was when i started buying comic books like that there was no third-party grading right i know this isn't a comic collecting podcast but you know <laughs> starting in around 2002 you could send your comic books to be graded by a third party which is the comics the cgc and then now there's another one and you know that way you can have it objectively evaluated and then slabbed in plastic so that you can keep it. And that was a, I picked that up sometime around 1990 and it's still sitting in the sleeve from 30 years ago, from 20 years ago, but it, it was a nine. And that I got that because of the sentimental value. Cause I loved that yeah. uh, copy. So it sort of got me back. So I'm reading the X-Men as I'm growing up. And when giant size came out and the new team came out, you know, I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. And I really identified with Scott at this time, you know, in the sixties, he's a really good guy. He's moody, you know, but bright young men are often moody and he gets the girl who I'm enthralled by. And he's a tall, lanky, skinny guy with glasses, which is what I was. And he got the girl and the guy with glasses never got the girl. You know, (laughs) and he was also, you know, he was the awkward guy. Yeah. No, I so I really, really liked him and I liked her. And so they stay in the book. I wasn't interested in Warren or Bobby or Hank, so I didn't care. I liked the new crew. I uh, particularly liked Nightcrawler and Banshee. Uh huh. Although I was a little disappointed, you know, when Warren Roth invented him. He wasn't handsome at all. And Bans, you know, he's he looks frankly like kind of a racial caricature from one of those anti-Irish cartoons. <laughs> he's got like one of those. He's got like a little button nose and he just looks like. Really I didn't really ever think of that. But I, you got a point. Yeah. Anyway, but I liked him a lot. But certainly Cockrum and then Byrne do make him very handsome. Yeah. So yeah, I get yeah. what you're saying is that yeah. that's a different. But I, I liked him. I liked Nightcrawler a lot more than I'd like any of the other originals besides Scott and Jean. And Scott and Jean stay in, and they really are the focus. And so I was enthralled by the whole Phoenix thing, and I was moved by, I, I thought it was, you know, I was old enough by this time to know this is kid stuff. Comic books are kid stuff. But I was, I thought, you know, well, that doesn't mean it's not art. Right. I mean, you're 20 when she dies in Dark Phoenix. Yeah, and... I thought it was great. And I stuck with it. I liked the aftermath of it. I loved what's called From the Ashes now. I don't remember mm-hmm. if they called it that then, but it ends in 176. The arc where he meets Madeline and they get married at the end. What I realized about why I loved X-Men so much was I didn't really put it together till I was 40. 
And when I was 40, Dark Horse Comics came out with a complete set of an English translation of Lone Wolf and Cub. And I was obsessed with Lone Wolf and Cub. I had been dying to see Lone. I had heard about it forever. Around the time I was in my late 20s, someone hired Frank Miller and did a, a comic book of Lone Wolf and Cub that was an English yeah. translation. And it was reprints with a new cover by Miller, but they clearly ran out of money or the it's it wasn't complete. Happening. Right. And I had as soon as you could get copies of those movies with subtitles, I had them. And there were six. I they remember were, you had 19, the, um, so you, wa- you watched those movies, which, you know, shame on me. Yeah, they were called Baby Cart. Baby Cart movies, yes. Lone Wolf and Cub, the first six movies, which, you know, I had been a, I, this isn't in a, a, a samurai cinema podcast either, but I, you know, I was, since the 70s, I'd been absolutely riveted by Kurosawa samurai movies right and lone wolf and cub movies were like this legend that fans of kurosawa's movies and remember right because you couldn't get them right and the other thing is these are so samurai movies were so big because when i'm 20 kagamusha comes out which is um one of uh kurosawa's last big epic Mm -hmm. samurai movies when i'm 25 ron comes out which for my money is probably the best movie in the 1980s it's his version of king lear yeah what happens then is that Lone Wolf and Cub becomes available, but you still don't find out how it ends. The six movies, they don't end because they made them in like 72, 73. And the manga wasn't done yet. Right. So Dark Horse brings out the whole 142 issues in a couple of years. They were doing one every couple of months. Yeah, it was around 2000. Yeah. And they did it in 28 volumes and I bought them as they came out. And I read it through and I realized that that 142 issue comic was for me the perfect story told through a synergy of pictures and words, that that was as good as it gets. And then I realized that X-Men had been the same thing, if you look at it from the perspective I did. And that is... Because Claremont didn't like Scott, he brings in Storm, and Storm is a stick to hit over Scott's head. You know, I'm so much better than you. I'm so much smarter. I'm so much <laughs> cooler. I'm so much more powerful. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're right. You rule. And eventually she beats him with no powers and takes over. It's the best. And he retires with the woman he's fallen in love with and leaves. And for me, that was a perfect story because it's the opposite of Lone Wolf and Cub. Lone Wolf and Cub is, as things always are, a story about a hero and his son, who's a hero, and their adversary, who is a magnificent, special man, but bad, although there's nuance there. And of course, it ends as all such things must end. I will not say how it ends, uh, but you should all buy uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Anyway, um, but... This is the opposite. This is a story that resonated with me enormously well at the time. And that is, it was a story about a young man finding his mediocrity and accepting it and realizing that the most significant thing in his life was that he was the feckless love interest 
of someone who was the star of the whole thing. You know, he's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Right. The story had been about Gene the whole time. But the whole time. And he realizes it, marries a normal woman. I mean, she's very beautiful, but she's normal and goes away. And his story ends. And that resonated for me. Marries very specifically a woman who, if you're looking at the story, is Gene, but a normal woman rather right. than a, like, is a Gene that he can have without can it have, being. And they can leave a normal, she's not a god, life. you know? Yeah, she's not a god. And, you know, this all kind of came into my head later. But I will tell you, one of the reasons I identified with the guy, one of the reasons I like the X-Men is, you know, they're not born superheroes. They're not even people who, you know, train religiously like Batman to be superheroes forever. They're people who, in the middle of their adolescence, get these magical powers. Mm -hmm. And that connected with me, honestly, because I didn't realize until I was at the beginning of adolescence and a, a principal and a teacher and a guidance counselor sat me down and they said, so, you know, you're great at school. And I didn't really know that because you don't they, they don't really explain to you you're great at school. They said, so here's the deal. If you don't get in trouble over the next six years, you can go to any college you want. And I remember thinking, well, that's not true because my parents can't pay for any college I want. Right. I'm going to go to UMass or I'm going to go to Framingham State, but I'm, I'm not going to. So no, 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 no. You're going to get scholarships. You're going to do work study and you're going to get loans. You can go to any school you want. You can do anything you want. That had not occurred to me. And it was like getting a superpower. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like it helped me with girls. It helped me socially in a lot of ways. I mean, being people didn't use the term nerd at the time. <laughs> that comes a few years later. But, yeah. You know, um, it wasn't there wasn't so much stigma about being, oh, he's the kid who's really good at school, even in sports. You know, I wasn't particularly good about sports, but I played sports, but the curve got lower. You know, it's like, oh, well, Jim's pretty good at sports for a guy with glasses who, you know, is good at school. Well, there was the sense that you were going to get out. Yeah. And I was going to get out. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, one of them said, you don't have to wear plastic shoes your whole life, which in retrospect, I probably should have said. But but it was true. You wore plastic shoes because your parents couldn't afford shoes that were not plastic. I did. And it was true. And I think for a lot of bright but mediocre people like me, uh, because I'm someone who doesn't have an original thought in his body. I, I, I don't. I have no. You're. I will. For the since the listeners don't know you the way that I do, I will say a thing about my father is that my father is remarkably self-deprecating in a way that is notable to everyone around him. That is very charming and is probably why he isn't a mad scientist who became a vampire pteranodon because he has the intellect to do just about anything in the world. And yet he's convinced always that he's not that special. Well, I, first of all, that's very kind of you to say, but uh, you are your show. You, that that is um, that's the perspective of someone who grew up uh, looking up to his father. I, that being said, we can move on from that because the we point can is, move on. The point, the point is, is, I will tell you, in my life, you know, you send a kid off from one environment into the environment of a, an elite university context again because the people listening don't necessarily know so you were the valedictorian at your high school in framingham and got a scholarship to harvard and went to harvard right i did work study and i borrowed i only had to borrow twenty five thousand dollars over four years at three percent and everything else was scholarship 
And so I got to go to Harvard University. And that was, um, you know, a big, uh, a big shift. Um, and <laughs> yeah. with it, I think, you know, my head swelled, as I think a lot of kids do at that age. And it's as you get older and you realize, oh, wait a second. I'm just good at school. Every a lot of people here are good at school. Not every, a lot of people here are good at school. Um, oh, and eventually, you know, I go to Harvard Law School, and I, I was given a speech in 2010, and somebody introduced me as the least successful Harvard Law Review editor from the class of 1985. Well, that's certainly true, objectively <laughs> exactly. speaking. I could make a case that I, I might well, not be the least well, successful. Okay, okay, but are but we, I, are I looking at you? you Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. Yeah, when Elena Kagan became a Supreme Court Justice, she was like, do you ever feel bad? Like, Elena Kagan's like on the Supreme Court and you're like a lawyer for accountants. I said, no, I never feel bad. And I'll tell you why. Because when we were 22, you know what I knew about Elena Kagan? I knew she was like a million times smarter than me. And now she's probably <laughs> a billion times smarter than me. I mean, <laughs> I, a lot of these people, you know, were just a lot better at stuff than I was. I would say Elena won, but I would put you ahead of Spitzer. You'd be wrong. In 2021. In terms of least or most successful. Oh, well, he's had a year. lot of success and he had an embarrassing... You never had to resign from the government. I never got in trouble. I know. I One of the great things, uh, all your listeners with like one exception are, are, are not retirement age, but one of the great things about being retired is you realize... Oh my God, I'm never going to mess up badly enough to need to get fired. This is great. <laughs> I made it. I got all the way through. Now I just have to play golf. And, you know, that's fantastic. But the thing is, it really it takes you a while to get over the solipsism, or it took me a while. Maybe other people are better, of thinking, wow, I must be special. The gifted kid thing, that was a term that got applied to it more in my generation. Mm. And now there's lots of talk about gifted kid burnout, of basically, the kids of my generation who were told you're very, very, very special. And then we went through like six recessions in our adolescence and now we don't own anything. Yeah. Sorry about that. And, we, probably, uh, <laughs> we, we totally screwed that up for you. I'm real sorry. Yeah. Kid. I, I, uh, Listen, it happens. It I did guess. not go well. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Anyway, but all those people who became famous were special. Yeah. You know, I went to school over the years with a lot of people who became really very successful, very famous. And they all kind of were special on their own, but I am not. And I'm okay with that. And I will tell you, my life started to get happier and happier when I realized that. I realized I didn't have as much ambition as some other people. I realized I didn't have as much talent as some other people. I realized that I was a mediocrity. Indeed, I even realized that in my own way, my role in life was to be the slightly absent-minded love interest of your mother, who's more special than I am. <laughs> I mean, she's she's pretty great. <laughs> so I love that story. And so for me, as by the way, it's around 150 issues because they reprint for like 27. So X-Men 1 to X-Men 176 yeah. is like a perfect story of a man realizing who he is and truly growing up. Because to grow up, is to put aside your solipsism, is to put aside your childish arrogance and to move on and to be a person. 
And then, of course, they screw it up entirely. One month later. One it's, month later. Yeah. And um, and so in terms of my journey with uh, with X-Men, actually, that, you know, I kept reading it because Claremont was so the, good. The month is after 201, but you got yeah, what I mean. Yeah. Do. Well, like, it happens. Yeah. yeah. So they bring out X-Factor. And, you know, at this point, I'm married to your mother. Right. We're going to have you. We're starting to plan our families. Now, I have. I only have one rule, really about how people have to behave is if you have kids you take care of your kids if you have kids and you don't take care of your kids you have failed in the most fundamental way that an adult can fail you know i have strong feelings about this as both of my grandfathers were were men who had failed my parents yes. in a bad way and my my father was a very good man he was a very decent man but he was a very sad man and he had a lot of problems that prevented him from being a super present father also in some way well he, he i mean he was around he did his best he, he did his best it was present physically best. Certainly. Was, my father had a very very sad life i mean the only he had a lot of bad breaks and the only good break he ever got was uh my mom right in his whole life and you know i rightly or wrongly i i blamed my grandfather for uh, doing that uh, I think rightly. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't have a lot of. I mean, I never met the man. My father's mother was a well-meaning was a well-meaning woman, but um, she was very, very ill at the time that my grandfather disappeared, and they told my dad he was dead. And uh, <laughs> he got better. I do think that it is fair to blame your grandfather for your father's yeah, issues because she she was too sick to take care of children, and and it right. didn't work out well. This is some lore, some goals of family lore. Mom would be so mad that we're talking about family. Yeah, we got to cut this. But no, we're not going to cut it. She's listen and she's going to tell mom. Shh, Katie. Katie, if you're listening, don't tell mom that we're talking about the family. It's not mom's family. You're talking about dad's family. Oh, not at all. We ain't talking about your mom. Oh, please. No, I would never dare. But so to be clear, this is what we're talking about. This is what, the 40s, I guess? Uh, It's the 30s. It's before the war. Okay. So great-grandpa... My great grandpa, my father's grandfather, disappears because he has crushing gambling debts, vanishes into the night. And my great grandmother, who is completely unmedicated, undiagnosed, untreated, tells Grandpa Sam that he's dead. Pretty much. And then he eventually just comes back and they don't explain how he came back. Years later. Very X-Men, honestly. Like, he was in a cocoon healing at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. I, I do want to say that I knew my grandmother quite well, and I, I was a teenager, when, a young teenager when she died, and uh, she was a very well-meaning person, but she was sick. Of course, she was just, she was ill and was left alone with children, yeah. and it was not good. And by the way, on, the, on my mother's side of the family, my grandfather was a total cad. Complete. When he was gone, my grandmother was a formidable woman who, raised five girls and uh, an abused boy she took in off the streets on a waitress's salary Yep, for her whole life. And listen, your mother was one of the most lovely, warm people there ever was. So Thank you. And the thing is that at the end of the day, I developed very strong feelings that I don't believe everyone should have kids. I don't think you're under any obligation to have kids. You've told me I probably shouldn't. <laughs> In the nicest possible way, to be clear. I'd put it differently. If you met some guy who was an absolute super dad, I could see it working. But um, 
But on my own, no, it would be a horror show. <laughs> uh, you sell yourself a little short, but you're not. Um, you're I don't not think I'm wrong. Some wisdom here. Yeah. Anyway, so the point is, I'm a young man thinking, okay, he's just in, done a crappy thing. This is because we're talking about Scott leaving his family. Yeah, I have generally avoided being friendly with men who abandon children. When I make the rare exception, it's when I believe that the man I know has been feeling remorseful for a long time about what he did to those children and has done whatever he thought he could do to make their lives better in the decades or years since. But I need to see something from Scott now (laughs) where he atones for the fact that he's just become public enemy number one for me and they don't give it to you instead actually and it's sort of the flip side of your love for madeline Pryor, it's like louise simonson is so into rehabilitating these people without making them suffer and without making them account for the fact that what they did was affirmatively evil it's like okay well it turns out (laughs) your wife wasn't real turns out your (laughs) wife's an evil demon and she's not even real it's a good thing to send your son away and have (laughs) consumed by techno organic viruses because you're the good guys and you did good awesome things and i have to say from that point on i'm 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 hanging in there through my late 20s and early 30s because the stories are good but i was losing interest fast and at the very end you know now I've got you kids watching the X-Men shows and you're starting to read X-Men comics and you liked it a lot. And I kept buying them, but I, it, it was like force a habit, you know? So eventually I'm buying them. I'm not reading them. And then the year your sister was born, you know, so now I'm 34. I'm almost exactly the same age you are today. Right. That's 1994. Yeah. I, I got a wife. I got three kids. I got a mortgage. I got responsibilities. I got to make partner. You know, I got to do all that stuff. (laughs) And I thought, well, I don't really relate to these comic books anymore. But I read one thing that I loved, and it was The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And I loved it because they took responsibility for the horrible thing they'd done. And they give 12 years of their lives. I mean, obviously, for these people, 12 years of their lives is essentially, you know, 15 seconds in regular people's lives because they live forever. But, right, you know, but, but they're pretending they don't live forever. And the thing about that story is that it's not 12 publication years, right? It's like they say 12 years 12 in years. the story. Yeah. They don't age because of Rachel's... Yeah, she makes them young again. Well, she sends them back to their yeah. bodies, but they do spend 12 years living in the story and raising that boy. Right. And that, for me, was nice. I thought, maybe I'm about done here. And then I went up when, when, when I was preparing to do this podcast with you, I went up into the attic. This is a complete coincidence, but it's great. Yeah. I looked at the comic books that I hadn't looked at in 25 years. There are boxes of comic books in the attic that mm-hmm. I haven't looked at in 25 years. And I knew if I looked, I could find out what the, like the last two or three comic books. I just don't know which. I, I remember what I did when I put them all away and put them up in the attic. And, you know, you may have gone up there to do stuff with them, but I never looked at them again until until yesterday. And one of the last two or three comics I read was X-Men Unlimited number six. And the only reason I read it, because I had the others, but I just, I bought them and then I put them up in the attic and, you know, sent them to the cornfield. I, I right, they, yeah. they lived unread to this day. 
but that one I read because I, I flipped it and there was a reference to the story about the 12 years they'd spent in the future and how they'd learned from it. And also it had an awesome Sauron cover. Yeah, the cover has Sauron on it. <laughs> it absolutely does. And so I read that Sauron story and I loved it a lot. And then I never read any more comic books. So Here's <laughs> that's the thing. why I know I went, I, I took much too long on that. You can cut it out in post. No, but, um, no, stop. It was good. This is going to be, this episode is a vibe. Here's the thing about Sauron. There's not a ton to dig into with Sauron. We're mostly just going to have fun. So this is more an episode, I think, about you and me and all of that. And comic books. Yeah. Well, that's true. But, well, that's the whole, that's my whole story about comic books. Yeah, and we just did it. And here's the thing that I love about that. Your journey actually has two bookends that we can look at. There's the Scott thing that you're referencing where you identified with Scott. You loved the ending where he marries Madeline and retires after 201. You were really distressed by him leaving his family and you hung on basically just long enough to watch him make that right as much as he could to his child, at least. Yeah, I'd say he doesn't make it right, but he 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 definitely the best he, amends he, does the he work. can he make puts in the work. Right. So that's one. The other one, though, is that you started right around the time that Sauron comes in. Yes. And X Men Unlimited Six. It's clearly intended this way. If it had been allowed to be, would have been the last Sauron story. I mean, it completes his arc. You know, that's what's interesting to me is I read. All of the, you know, I, I, I read all of the Sauron arcs. It's basically he has six stories counting that X-Men Unlimited story, which I count. Yeah. By that point. And I had read all of them in real time. Uh, X-Force, I, I probably read a year after it came out because I remember mm -hmm. I bought X-Force. I, I, I didn't start. I bailed after New Mutants and I wasn't going to read X-Force. And then about a year later, I, I, I read it. But there's six stories and they tell a very, they tell a really good arc. Yeah. I'm saying it makes total sense that you'd be like, well, you know what? Scott took care of his kid, a little bit at least, and Sauron is finished like they finished the Sauron story yeah. so it's the right yeah. moment to leave and here now we go now we are going to dig into Sauron because I do have a lot of thoughts about this guy well and that's why it might be the right time to pause briefly for the Cerebro character file on Sauron Dr. Carl Lycos I will take you through his complete publication history from his first appearance in X-Men 59 in 1969 through to his most recent appearance in Jerry Duggan's X-Men Green arc of the X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic on the Marvel Unlimited app. Then we will come back for more with my dad, James Goldsmith, Esquire. Retired. Retired, formerly. I don't know. You're still, but you still are. I'm still an Esquire. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, we will dig into his favorite Sauron stories and then answer questions from listeners like you. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men. X-Men. Hey, everybody. We're doing things a little differently today because I'm excited as Connor Goldsmith, your host, to tell you about the podcast's extraordinary new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game, every comic fan's dream. In this mobile squad RPG, you can assemble a team of your favorite superheroes and supervillains, like Dr. Lorna Dane and the iconic Madeline Jennifer Pryor, to save the universe from cosmic threats like Apocalypse and Doctor Doom. Power up your favorite Marvel characters to complete missions, unlock special gear and other resources, and battle other Marvel fans in PvP modes like Alliance War in the real-time arena. 
Right now, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating their six-year anniversary with a special Deadpool event, and you can sign up using my unique link available right now in the description of every episode. You'll get free stuff in the game just for signing up through this promotion, with weekly bonuses and events all through this anniversary storyline. Log in every day to get special skins, rewards, and the brand new characters being released to celebrate six years of Marvel Strike Force. This is the game's most generous event to date, and I, for one, can't wait to see all the goodies I can unlock. This promo code works for every new user. Please follow the unique link in this episode description to download Marvel Strike Force so they'll know I sent you. Use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Have a blast with this immersive Marvel experience. Thanks to Marvel Entertainment and the team at Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. We now return you to the show. X-Men, X-Men. Dr. Carl Lycos, the sinister Sauron, is one of the rare Silver Age X-Men villains who managed to make the jump to franchise mainstay. Though his appearances are relatively few, they're always memorable, in large part because he's a hypnotic pterodactyl man. Created by Roy Thomas and Neil Adams, and originally presented as a tragic Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde-type figure, Lycos evolved over time into a reliable comic relief antagonist, a role in which he has thrived. Hypnotherapist Dr. Carl Lycos first appears in 1969's X-Men 59 through 61. These are among the final issues of the 60s run, which was canceled with issue 66 in 1970. Lycos is an associate of the late Charles Xavier, and the X-Men find his information while looking for a doctor to treat Alex Summers, a.k.a. Havoc, who's been injured badly in their most recent adventure. Secretly, Lycos is an energy vampire who discreetly feeds on his hypnotized patients. In issue 60, as he's preparing to feed on Alex, we get an accounting of his backstory. Born in Tierra del Fuego off the coast of Argentina, the son of a sailor, Carl and his widower father worked as guides for tourists and scientists. When he was an adolescent, they were hired to guide a wealthy man named Anderson and his little girl, Tanya. Tanya ended up separated from the group, and Carl rescued her from a pack of pteranodons who had apparently made their way through subterranean tunnels from the still-unknown Savage Land. Tanya couldn't remember what had happened, and Carl said he didn't either, but it seemed like he just didn't think anyone would believe him. The pteranodon bites and scratches he suffered in the attack became infected, and he would have died but for the intervention of Dr. Anderson, who paid for the finest care. When Carl's dog attempted to comfort him in his sickbed, Carl accidentally absorbed a small portion of the animal's life energy and was suddenly restored. While the dog was unharmed, Carl was perturbed, realizing he must now feed on the life energy of others to survive. When Carl's father died, not long afterward, Dr. Anderson adopted him as a foster child and raised him alongside Tanya in America. Carl and Tanya fell in love as they grew older, though Tanya was unaware Carl was covertly draining little bits of life force from the people around him when he could. Anderson refused to give the couple his blessing, believing Tanya needed to marry a man of status and wealth. Carl became fixated on changing Anderson's mind. He went to medical school and opened a private practice in Manhattan, eventually coming into contact with Charles Xavier and aiding in the professor's research on mutant biology. Carl believed mutant life force would be more satisfying to his vampiric urge, but his plans were foiled when Xavier eventually cut off contact. Now, with Xavier dead, he gets better, don't worry about it, and Alex Summers in his clutches, Carl absorbs mutant energy for the first time and is suddenly transformed into a human pteranodon hybrid. The transformation seems to alter his personality, and proclaiming himself an agent of evil, he renames himself Sauron after the villain of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Sauron immediately begins robbing places to get more money so he can impress Anderson and get his blessing to marry Tanya, apparently not too worried about the weridactyl aspect of everything. The X-Man Angel, implicated in the crimes because he also has wings, confronts the new supervillain but is hypnotized by Sauron, whose natural talent and skill at hypnosis has become a superpower in dino form. He's forced to carry the Doctor to safety, as Sauron realizes his power is limited, and after battling the X-Men, he's reverting to the human form of Carl Lycos. 
Returning to his office, Carl finds Tanya, who hopes to convince him that they should marry even without her father's approval. Anderson, who's followed her to Carl's office, declares the hypnotherapist a quack and vows he will not approve of the union, something Carl still insists upon, to Tanya's dismay. The X-Men, still unaware Carl is Sauron, come and pick up Alex from the office. Carl later tracks them down and drinks from Lorna Dane, who's watching at Alex's bedside, transforming into Sauron again. He flies to Scarsdale to kill Dr. Anderson, but is attacked by the X-Men. During the battle, he realizes Tanya would never forgive him if he killed her father, and is horrified by his growing megalomania. He soars across the world, returning to Tierra del Fuego to live in isolation, reverting to Carl Lycos once more. Tanya, guessing that Carl has returned to his birthplace, follows him with the X-Men. Panicking at the sight of Tanya, for he's tempted to drain her to death, Carl hurls himself off a cliff to his apparent death, sacrificing himself to protect the woman he loves. Nine years later, in 1978's X-Men 114, new writer Chris Claremont and artist John Byrne revive the character as an antagonist in the Savage Land. The new team of X-Men travel through the prehistoric jungle after a disastrous battle with Magneto in Antarctica, and a passing Carl is unable to resist taking a sip of Storm's life energy, as she's the most powerful mutant he's ever encountered. So powerful, in fact, that he instantly transforms back into Sauron, even though he only took a little bit. The return of Sauron twists Carl's personality to megalomaniacal evil once again, and he battles the X-Men until Colossus, acting at Cyclops' direction, transforms into steel form while in the monster's clutches, creating a mutant energy wave that overloads Sauron's body. Sauron reverts to Carl again, and Kazar, hero of the Savage Land, arrives to defend him as a friend. Carl explains recent events. He survived the fall in Tierra del Fuego, landing on a hidden platform beneath the cliff face and avoiding the X-Men's search and rescue efforts in order to let Tanya believe he was dead. He then found a tunnel to the Savage Land, where he witnessed the rebirth of the dark god Garak through the machinations of his high priestess Zeladane, queen of the Sun People. Kazar battled Garak and his forces, but was gravely injured. It was Carl who nursed him back to health, uniting with the indigenous tribe called the Fall People. After the X-Men defeat Garak and Zaladane, Carl chooses to stay in the Savage Land, hoping he'll be able to maintain his sanity and self-control and never turn into Sauron again. Four years later, in the inaugural story of the anthology title Marvel Fanfare by Chris Claremont and Dave Cockrum, Tanya Anderson approaches Warren, who retired from the X-Men before their Savage Land reunion with Sauron, and his lover Candy Southern at their home in New Mexico. Tanya was reading a magazine article about the Savage Land, now a publicly known location, and was shocked to see Carl Lycos standing among the Fall People. She asks Warren to fund a journey south so she can reunite with her love, and he agrees, taking along photographer Peter Parker, secretly Spider-Man. Warren, Peter, and Tanya are captured by the Savage Land mutates, and the evil brainchild uses a mutant energy acceleration device to turn them into monsters. Carl comes to their rescue and realizes he can counteract the machine with his energy vampirism. To save Tanya, Carl restores the three to health, but is immediately transformed into Sauron once again when he feeds on Warren. The wicked Sauron teams up with Zaladane, sitting beside her on cute little thrones as they lord over the Savage Land mutates. Warren calls for help from the X-Men, but in the meanwhile, Sauron and Zaladane conquer most of the Savage Land, slaughtering many of the Fall People. Sauron kidnaps Tanya and Kazar's paramour, Shanna the She-Devil, torturing them with the devolution device in order to feed on them as rich sources of energy. When the X-Men arrive, they too are captured and used as fodder, but a battle with Warren tires Sauron out, and he becomes Carl Lycos again. Back in New York, Professor Xavier announces he's discovered a way to cure Carl's vampirism, a side effect of a genetic virus that he caught from the mutant pteranodons that bit him as a child. Xavier's treatment runs the risk of killing Carl outright, but it apparently works. Carl is cured, Tanya is overjoyed, and they make plans to marry. 
Nine years later, in the pages of Rob Liefeld's X-Force, the Silver Age villain The Toad, now leading his own Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and attempting to prove himself as a force to be reckoned with, kidnaps Carl and Tanya and uses a high-tech device to kill Tanya and transfer all her life energy to Carl, turning him back into Sauron. Honestly, this sucks. She dies off panel, even. Sauron is basically just a mook in these appearances. He does murder Cannonball, who immediately gets better because at this point in the story, he's an external. Don't worry about it. Please see the Cannonball episode. Farrell and Cable manage to apparently kill Sauron, but he turns up a few months later in X-Factor, written by Peter David, and now focusing on the adventures of a new government team led by Havoc and Polaris. Sauron had been floating in the East River in a regenerative sleep. For whatever reason, perhaps due to Toad's experiments, not reverting to Carl Lycos. He absorbs a passing homeless man subconsciously and wakes up, returning to the Brotherhood. While fighting X-Factor, he brags about his murder of Cannonball, not knowing the hero survived. Rain Sinclair, Cannonball's former teammate, is enraged at the news and tries to tear Sauron's throat out. He barely escapes with his life and makes a few more appearances as a member of this iteration of the Brotherhood, in titles like Darkhawk and Sleepwalker that you absolutely do not need to worry about. The following year, he returns for a three-issue arc of the Wolverine solo by Larry Hama and Dwayne Turner. Having left the Brotherhood and returned to the Savage Land, Sauron is once again attempting to conquer the prehistoric realm. Wolverine, Rogue, and Jubilee manage to overpower him and plan to use Brainchild's mutant accelerator to revert him to Carl Lycos. But Sauron protests that he and Carl are separate beings and that bringing back Carl Lycos is murdering Sauron. He further argues that the X-Men have no right to enforce their values on the people of the Savage Land, many of whom follow Sauron of their own free will. Wolverine is moved by his argument and leaves him be. In a 1994 X-Men Unlimited story the following year by John Francis Moore and Al Rio, Sauron's sanity has been deteriorating due to guilt for murdering Tanya, and he has the mutates kidnap Havoc in an effort to restore himself to full strength. He managed to drain both Alex and his brother Scott, charging himself to greater levels of power than ever before, but Jean Grey is able to telepathically enter his mind. She reaches the Carl Lycos personality, trying to convince him to seize control of the shared body, but Lycos elects to grab the Sauron personality and leap off an astral cliff, killing them both. Jean departs the mindscape to find that Sauron is now a mindless pteranodon like any other, despite his half-human body. He attempts to join a flock of passing pterosaurs, but they reject him. Thus is the tragic tale of Carl Lycos and... Oh wait, they brought him back? They brought him back. Two years later, writer Chuck Dixon brings Sauron back for a Khazar one-shot. Sauron's human intellect is slowly returning, but he's still only got an animal's low cunning. He tries to force Khazar and Shanna to use technology to re-evolve him, but fails. Regardless, some months later, he turns up in Steve Siegel's run on Uncanny X-Men, where he's regained some of his higher mental faculties and reverted to the Carl Lycos form. Hiding in Kazar and Shana's luggage, no, seriously, Carl smuggles himself back to Manhattan. There he feeds on homeless people until he senses the mutant energy to the north and attacks the Xavier School, draining Wolverine and turning back into Sauron. He's overpowered by the X-Men, and there's a goofy crossover with Alpha Flight that you don't need to worry about. Two years later, we're in 2000 now, I swear we're almost done, Sauron turns up in the retcon book X-Men The Hidden Years, written and illustrated by John Byrne, which attempts to fill in the continuity gap between the cancellation of the 60s X-Men title and the 1975 relaunch. We learn that Bobby Drake, Iceman, made his way to the Savage Land and encountered Carl, but had lost his memory on the journey and did not recognize the Doctor. Carl helped him recover, but they ended up attacked by Magneto, and Carl fed off Bobby to restore himself. He became Sauron again, hypnotizing Magneto, but was stopped by Bobby, Alex, and Lorna. Sauron departed, but not before using his hypnotic power to erase the X-Men's memories of this story, allowing it to fit into continuity with stories where the X-Men believed Carl was dead. He presumably reverted back to Carl eventually, and then encountered Garak and Zaladane, leading into the story in X-Men 114. Back in the present, Sauron then pivots into the Weapon X title by Frank Thierry, which, I'm going to be real, I simply do not like. 
In an effort to gain more power, Sauron joins the Weapon X program, and while they succeed in giving him new energy powers, he loses his intellect again and becomes a mindless beast once more. He eventually comes back to himself, but is blackmailed into betraying the director of the program. I honestly don't worry about any of this. I will cover it at some point in an Aurora or Wild Child episode, God help me. The important thing to know is that the Sauron and Carl personalities seem to somewhat integrate here, and Sauron becomes able to shift between human and Pteranodon forms at will. Marvel also dwied that book, because when Sauron turns up in Brian Michael Bendis and David Finch's New Avengers in 2004, the Weapon X stuff is mostly ignored. Sauron escapes from the RAF, the maximum security prison for superpowered criminals, but is recaptured by the Avengers in the Savage Land. You don't need to worry about this either. In 2010, during the Zeb Wells run on New Mutants, Sauron and the Mutates pop up for a one-off to cause some trouble for Cannonball and his squad. The Weridactyl returns in Jason Aaron's Wolverine and the X-Men two years later, where he's hired as the evil science teacher at the new Hellfire Academy, a rival to Wolverine's Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. The Sauron stuff in this book is very funny, but he's very much a supporting character. In the 2015 miniseries Spider-Man and the X-Men by Elliot Kalin and Marco Faila, Spider-Man has taken on a teaching job at the Jean Grey School and takes some students on a field trip to the Museum of Natural History in Manhattan, only to discover it under attack by Sauron and the Spidey villain Stegron the Dinosaur Man, who is a Stegosaurus person. I honestly don't know anything else about Stegron. This is not a Spider-Man podcast. Sauron somehow shares his life-draining power with Stegron and upgrades Stegron's technology so they can use it to turn people into dinosaurs. They turn lots of people into dinosaurs, attempting to create a new savage land on Staten Island, which is very funny. X-Men student Shark Girl appeals to Sauron as a fellow prehistoric creature and apparently betrays her friends to help him. She turns out to be a double agent, obviously, and turns Stegron against Sauron. The two dinosaur men attempt to best each other, but instead just knock each other out. There are some cameo appearances after this that you don't really need to worry about. Sauron fights Groot and Rocket Raccoon. He fights Ben Riley. yada, yada, yada. He's briefly in Modoc Head Games, written by friend of the pod Jordan Bloom and, in my imagination, friend of the pod Patton Oswalt. He helps Deadpool protect Staten Island in a Kelly Thompson story during the company-wide event King in Black. The big return is in 2021's X-Men Green by Jerry Duggan and Emilio Lysso, the second arc of the Marvel Unlimited app-exclusive X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic. As he isn't a mutant, Sauron hadn't appeared on Krakoa following the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, but I had to find a way to work that catchphrase in, so there it is. In this story, we see he's up to his usual evil science experiments, but his laboratory is destroyed as collateral damage by the Cyanodyne Oil Company. This compels him to team up with rogue mutant teen Lin Lee, aka Nature Girl, on her quest to destroy those who would exacerbate climate change. Saren is charmed by Lin, and especially her new friend Curse, as he agrees that being bad is fun! Also, he's telekinetic now, always new powers, and I love that for him. Sauron helps the girls battle the mercenary Black Mamba and tells them they're welcome to find him in the future to seek his aid in their quest. I, for one, cannot wait to see it. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed soaring high above the Savage Land with the sinister Sauron. I'm here with my dad, James Goldsmith. We are now going to actually dig into Sauron more than we did beforehand. But now you're all caught up on exactly what this pterodactyl's deal is just in time for us to talk about my dad's favorite stories but i think we're gonna go dad chronologically somewhat at least up through x-men unlimited six when you stopped reading fair there are six stories like i said between 1969 and i guess what must be 1996 or seven it's right around that and my favorite just not to bury the lead is in uh, Marvel Fanfare 1 through 4, which is one of my favorite um, mm -hmm. stories. I remember reading it at the time and loving it, and uh, I love it to this day. 
And that's the third Sauron story. The first story is the one in, in, well, 59, 60, and 61. Yes. That's the one where Sauron becomes Sauron. And I'm sure you've covered this in the file, but, you know, obviously he absorbs all that delicious mutant energy from Havoc. What I love about, there's a lot of things I love about Sauron from that story. And it, it sets some of the fundamental things about him. First of all, this is not going to be, I'm not, well situated to talk about LGBTQ issues the way many of your guests are and wouldn't be presumptuous enough to, but I am comfortable talking about this guy because he is the most heterosexual character in the Marvel (laughs) universe. And the reason you know that is, so his primary motivation in the first story Mm -hmm. is that he's in love with Tanya. Right. And, you know, he loves Tanya. He wants Tanya. He wants to get money by turning into a pterodactyl. He needs to convince her rich father from Scarsdale that they should get married. And the best thing about this, and by the way, I I would feel the pain, but in issue number 60, we find out that Sauron calls himself Sauron when he becomes a pterodactyl, not because he's a pterosaur. No. But because he loves Tolkien. Because he's so much of a nerd that he loves Tolkien. So when he becomes evil, he wants to give himself a name without even noticing the fact that it's kind of apt because he's, you know. It's somewhat ironic because he's a dinosaur. Yeah. Let me actually read it because sure. it's uh, it's wild. Yeah. So Lakos has had this energy vampirism problem ever since he saved Tanya when they were children from a bunch of I guess, radioactive pteranodons. Oh, no, no, no. They're mutant pteranodons. No, that's right. You know, They're the mutant... kind they have in Tierra del Fuego. Right. Yeah. Tierra del Fuego, which is off the coast of Argentina and Chile. He and his father, his single dad, show people, rich people around Tierra del Fuego. Tanya's father, Dr. Anderson, is a researcher of some kind. Tanya and Carl end up in a cave connected to the Savage Land in Antarctica, where they are beset upon by mutated pteranodons that somehow infect Carl, who saves Tanya's life, with a genetic disease that alters his DNA. Remember, it's the 60s, and we don't super understand DNA that well yet, I guess. Once he is saved, he has this need to absorb energy from living things to survive and to sustain himself. He learns this by accidentally draining his dog initially, but the dog is fine, thankfully, which is nice. After his father dies, he's adopted by the Andersons. It's another weird, my foster sister, my love thing. It's like very Kurt and Amanda. Yeah. He's adopted by Dr. Anderson and raised with Tanya, and they're in love. And they want to get married, but her father won't have it because he is too poor and is not, you know, from a good, wealthy family or whatever. So he goes to medical school and becomes a hypnotherapist, which was very trendy in the 60s, hypnotherapy. So it doesn't, it sounds really stupid now, but this was like a thing that people did do. (laughs) My grandmother was a hypnotherapist, not your mom. Uh, mom. (laughs) No. (laughs) My mom was a children's librarian. No, but my, my other grandmother was a licensed hypnotherapist she was a psychologist generally but she did do hypnotherapy anyway point is 
when they bring Alex to him for help because they found his name in Charles's notes, he ends up draining Alex, but it's the first mutant he's ever drained. And he suddenly bends over and starts shifting into a horrible creature. And at first, it looks like a more standard kind of vampire thing because it looks like he's turning into a bat, right? Because the wings come first. And he goes, my body, my face, my very soul, they are changed, transformed, filled with a bursting, billowing power, power for good or power for evil. And then he turns directly to us in a splash panel where he is now fully a pteranodon in jeans. And he screams, and I choose evil. And, e and evil is so great, so monumental that only one name in all the annals of literature will contain it. The name of Tolkien's ultimate villain, that dark lord who personified evil, who was truly evil incarnate. The name of Sauron! And he soars up into the sky like he's the bat signal. He's in front of the moon, but he's a pterodactyl. It's the best. It's, it's the simply best. the best. It's, it's wonderful. Anyway, but, and then, you know, um, in the next issue... He proves that he's the most heterosexual guy in the entire world because Tanya's living down in Scarsdale. She comes up to get him, you know, and her jerk father says he's a penniless doctor, which, by the way, uh, the guy's got like a, a, a Park <laughs> Avenue practice. He's a thriving private practice <laughs> in, in 30, Manhattan. You know, I think he's doing OK, but whatever. And. <laughs> She says, I'm of age now, father, and I can do whatever I want. I am going to go off with Carl and marry him because I love him so deeply. And Carl says, screw that. It's not about you. It's about showing up your father. It doesn't that count unless we have your father's blessing. It's apex. <laughs> Let me tell you something. If you're willing to say, oh, I love you so, but, you know, I have to get you on my terms and make your dad say I'm sorry, then <laughs> you are, you are. You are toxic, dude. He's, he's a toxic yeah. guy. Yeah. And so he runs off and he fights the X-Men and he gets his ass kicked. And he's actually doing not that bad, you know, but he, um, you know, he goes a couple rounds and then he escapes because he's upset because he was going to kill Mr. Anderson, who, in fairness, sucks. was a jerk. But he's also tempted to kill Tanya. And that well, really, yeah. And then yeah. he. he, he jumps off the cliff and falls into to his apparent life. death so then we pick him up the next time we see him is in x-men 114 right years later now under claremont when the Correct. new team is in the savage land so the new team's in the savage land and there's all kinds of great things in this story and <laughs> what i really love is that at one point sauron carl so it turns out carl has been being good in the savage land is now kazar's best buddy and is only using his powers of vampirism for, for good. He's the good guy, and yet, 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 yet. But then he, poor guy, gets turned into, he absorbs Storm's energy, and it turns him into Sauron, because Storm's just bubbling with vital energy. Yeah, she's way more powerful than anyone he's ever touched. Ah, yeah. So he's like, so he immediately turns into Sauron. And then Sauron's talking about Carl, and who does this sound like? Lycos, the sniveling weakling. I'll die before I revert to him again. That's the Hulk, right? It's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be Carl Lycos. Being Carl Lycos sucks. I want to be me. I want to be Soren. And that's really nice. And then what's also nice, of course, is the thing about reading Soren is you read about one third of the life story of Zaladane. It's so true. Zaladane you get here. almost all of Zaladane's Savage Land yeah. appearances. Yeah. You know, they've called a snowstorm and, you know, um, 
The other thing that's cool about it is there's this is an early example of there's a sentry from Saladin's army and they got to get past them. So Wolverine just flat out kills him. Yep. And I was never a big Wolverine guy, but one thing I did think was interesting about him in this book was he would kill people. I mean, they sort of ruined that because the really good time of that is, is the Hellfire Club and, the and then they come back as the Reavers. Because yeah. he had become the star and started right. to kill people. But um, so, you know, you'll note that in the fight with Garak and Zaladane, Carl stays home. He's been turned back mm -hmm. into Carl. Everything's cool. Everyone loves Carl. Carl's a great guy. They all go off to fight Garak and Zaladane, and he sits that out. And he says, I'm going to stay in the Savage Land because, you know, it's better for everybody if I stay. And the next time we see him is in my favorite story, and that's the Marvel fanfare story. This is now 1982. It's yes. been like four years since last one. So we're jumping forward progressively in time is what I'm saying. Sauron punctuates. He does. You know, he, he just sort of pops up and you're like, oh, it's time for another Sauron story. Right. He's toward the end of the original run in the 60s. Then he shows up early in the Claremont run as part of the plot where Jean has become Phoenix. And then here he pops up for right after Dark Phoenix. We're like, okay, what's the franchise now? And there's this Marvel fanfare story starring Angel and eventually the X-Men. Yeah. It is the only story in which both Candy Southern and Zaladane appear for those in the audience keeping track. The Hidden Years story. Zaladin's not in the Hidden Years. Oh, you're right. You're right. It's this one because when Tanya goes to Angel's Eerie to be like, hey, I need your help saving Carl Lycos, Candy fixes them a drink or whatever. Yes. And is like, I'm not going. Have fun. Enjoy the Savage Land. Bye. I'm going to be poolside. By the way, one thing that's great about this comic book is they, they have one page in each of the four issues where Al Milgram, the, the editor, mm -hmm. uh, and Chris Claremont Vicker. And Claremont has a, a great line in one of them. Uh, I'm going to read it. Claremont's always bothering Milgram because he's a temperamental writer and he's smug and pompous and blah, blah, blah. I'm sure it was all in good fun. It's like, so, um, quote, the main character, is there any reason he can't be a woman? End quote. <laughs> Which is a nice quote. We also know, by the way, that Tanya is 27. Her age is identified, which is always her. She's 27 in uh, this story. The story is Tanya goes to Warren. Candy feeds her food and packs his bag. And he and Peter Parker go off to the Savage Land to hunt for Carl because she saw a picture of Carl standing next to Kazar. He and Kazar are sitting there, standing there in the Savage Land. There's an article about the Savage Land. So she goes to the Savage Land. They get out there and um, it turns out that the Savage Land mutants, have, mutates, have taken over Garrock's old city from uh, 114 through 116. They've got this awesome uh, transformer that they can use to devolve people or evolve people. So they they devolve the our heroes. They they devolve. Yeah, they turn them into like uh, Spider-Man and, and Angel spider and yeah. Tanya into like Neanderthal. Right. Tanya is great, by the way. Tanya is courageous. And, yeah. And, no, it's a bummer what Liefeld does to her, which we'll get. Well, there. I'll I'll get there. Because <laughs> getting ahead of ourselves, I mean, but yeah, the ultimate fridging, really. It's a pretty bad one. Anyway, so they, he devolves them, and the transformer gets broken. So the only way he can restore them, they, you know, science. But Carl, out of love, because mm -hmm. he doesn't want to turn into Sauron. No, and he's a real good guy when he's Carl. He absorbs 
the energy from the from our poor devolved heroes and it somehow re-evolves them turns them back to normal even though he knows he's going to turn into sauron which is what he doesn't want to do and so once he does of course he says i will declare war on all of you and i will fly away and he flies away this is important he hooks up with zaladin and by episode three he is hanging out with Zaladin on little thrones. They're on little thrones together on a dais, yeah. They have little thrones, and they have little skulls over the backs of the thrones. But the most important thing is that this is, I believe, his first banana hammock. And it's a fancy banana. You know, usually he's just wearing, like, jorts or something, you know? Yeah, he's, no, he's now wearing... he's got kind of like a, a loincloth thing. And it's, thing. you know how in the Marvel swimsuit, issue that you mm-hmm. like to talk about there's the picture of the punisher with the tiny little yeah along with the skull covering his junk that's what this banana hammock looks like it's that thong with a skull over his tyranno dong he's in like a regular loincloth yeah. kind of thing in the previous story yeah 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 so i like that here it's definitely more elaborate yeah like an elaborate speedo look and, you know, he and Zaladane and the Mutates, they capture the X-Men. And then he has his greatest moment ever. He says, now I'm Sauron. I'm evil as can be. And you guys are powerful mutants. Yay. So I am going to hook you up to my machine here, which we, you know, fixed. And I'm going to keep devolving you into savage creatures so that I can re-evolve you by draining it out and juicing myself and up. Juice, so enjoy this disgusting torture. And I'm going to keep you as a battery. I'm like running the Matrix here. That is, it's also the one, and I think you've talked about this in another episode. I mean, Brainchild, this is the one where Brainchild goes full metal pervert. Yeah, where Brainchild is just like, hmm, I'd love to rape that storm. And you're like, okay, this character sucks. But eventually Storm beats up Zaladane, you know, and she freezes Sauron. And so he turns back into Carl. And, you know, that's cool. So then what do we do with Carl? Because Carl is good. It's only Sauron who's evil. So they take him back to Professor X and he cures him. Mm -hmm. Yay. Also, this is the first time that that the professor says, oh, Carl's not a mutant. It's the pteranodons that that bit him that were mutants, (laughs) which is... Which means uh, we can cure him. I'm just going to go with it. Yeah. (laughs) And so I can cure him. And uh, Carl and Tanya get their happy ending. Mm -hmm. And they embrace, and it's all happily ever after. And then Rob Liefeld, the next time we see her, he fridges the living daylights out of her. Yeah, so nine years later. Yeah, ten years later. I don't like this uh, story as it happens. It's not good. But I do think the fridging, I I know fridging is a controversial thing because it's done to make the male character evolve. But in this Mm -hmm. case, it's not to make him seek vengeance or suffer or grow as a person. It's weird in this case because he doesn't even develop him as a character. Oh, I think it does. I think it does. It unleashes the inherent goofiness that makes him the Sauron. (laughs) And we'll get there, I'm sure. But without that fridging, he cannot be someone who could say those words to Spider-Man. Right, because it's there's a tragic element to the character when Tanya exists that removing her from the story, now you just have a pterodactyl guy. Right. I mean, so what happens is in X-Force number five, I, I should say, I, I, I'm sure, obviously, Liefeld has talent, but uh, I'm not a fan of his uh, style. 
Uh, so it's a little off-putting to me to begin with. But what happens in this story is Carl comes home to their apartment in Manhattan and Toad is there with the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He says, ha-ha, I'm going to turn you into Sauron by feeding you Tanya's energy with my new... I, frankly, it's not great science, but okay. And Toad just says, I'm going to kill her. Because historically, you needed a mutant to do it. Yeah, and yeah, she's yeah. not one. So it doesn't really track with the earlier stories, but... So... So Toad murders the shit out of her and forces Carl to drain her energies. He drains her energy, and then uh, he's Sauron. And for the rest of this whole arc, he's just Sauron, and he's um seems content enough to follow... Uh, you know, the newly enhanced Toad. This is Toad when he's kind of 90s badass Toad. Mm -hmm. So he's like more of a leader and Sora just follows him around, which is interesting. He murders Cannonball, which is he a does. big he moment for him. He fights Shatterstar who beats him. Yeah. And then he fights uh, in number eight. He fights Sam and he kills him, which is part of this whole incomprehensible- Eternal plot. Eternal plot. Then Cable shoots him in the back and he dies. <laughs> and that's pretty much it. He's just dead. Although there's a coda in X Factor 82 in which we see him and he's gotten better from being shot in the back. And he's he, fine. He's okay. He's, he's a little weak. He drains a homeless person to build up his strength. And then he feels good enough to fly back and find the rest of the Brotherhood. He has one little battle with um, Rain and Polaris. Mm hmm. He mentions that he killed Cannonball because yeah. he doesn't know Cannonball came back from the dead yeah, yeah, and yeah. Rain flips out. And he loses and so he uh he and so he just loses and goes away. And then we next see him in Wolverine, and um now he's moved back to the Savage Land. He's gotten the uh the mutates back together, you know, the bands together. Wolverine, Rogue, and uh Jubilee go looking for him. What I like about this story, it's not one of my favorites, but what I do like is his pants in this episode have a perfectly round hole for his tail cut out in the back. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the usual. It's ripped because I was wearing jeans when I mutated. Right. And he also has acquired a cape. <laughs> it's the first yeah. time we ever see him with upper body wear, but he's got a cape. And, uh, you know, it's a, a silly cape. And I, I do think it's the removal of Tanya. They're trying, they're starting to edge him towards what becomes his apotheosis. Which is Spider-Man and the X-Men, you're saying. Yeah, I actually, I, 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 I'll I, I really like what Jerry Duggan did with him in this recent thing that we just read <laughs> <Yeah>. today. <laughs> that may be peak Sauron, really. But I think that's a further evolution of his Spider-Man versus the X-Men perfect persona, which is absolute perfection. But he's been doing human sacrifices, so he sort of pisses off everybody. Oh, and oh, you know what else? He's got, um, he's really costumed up in this arc. He's got mm -hmm. like gold ankle warmers, which yeah. would have been out of fashion then, I think. But I don't know. Anyway, so he's got those. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're kind of like, they're almost like bracelets. They're like anklets, yeah. I guess. Yeah, they look but... like connected bracelets like the he's got a little tiara on it is sort of yeah, like his yeah, he's, fanciest he's, pretty, he's moment. pretty fancied up but so he's gussied up he fights uh, he's the his mutates and and dinosaurs to, to fight wolverine and that goes about as well as you could expect you know rogue and wolverine beat him up they turn him back to carl in his like you know machine and then he persuades the, them to let him be and I, 
I find this a really interesting. Mm-hmm. I find this a really interesting beat because Wolverine wants to kill him because you know Wolverine, right? And Rogue says, "No, we have to help him. We have to help him." Yeah, you do it. You do the voice. We have to help him, Wolverine, Logan. We have to help. And they, you have to help him by turning him back into Carl because that will make him good. And Sauron says, "No." If you turn me into Carl, you're killing me. Because we're two different people. Because I am not Carl. Right. I am Sauron. And they say, but if we let you go, you'll try to conquer the savage. And he says, yes, I will. <laughs> but. This is my favorite bit. Pardon? This is my favorite bit because he's like, yeah, I will. And what business is it of yours? Exactly. What the people of the savage land decide to do culturally. If they want to elect me ruler, that has nothing to do with you. And there's always going to. It's called the savage land for a reason. There are always going to be strong men like me who are going to try to conquer the savage land. That's a thing. So are you going to impose your Western values on me? Right. He even says that. Are you going to impose the trappings of your, quote, civilization, end quote, on these people who have their own society, which is big and older than yours? And, and, and why are you doing that? And they basically, you know, Wolverine says, get out of here before I change my mind and lets him go as Sauron basically does a follow the prime directive sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really nice. Uh, I, I will say what I don't like is that in a later story, I forget what, but in he says, you know, I actually... Uh, manipulated his mind and hypnotized him into doing Oh, that. that's annoying. And I didn't get that vibe. That's a retcon I don't like. Yeah, no, I don't like that. Because I think the point is, actually, he was making sense. Yeah. And Wolverine made a morally appropriate choice and good for Wolverine. Anyway, so that happens. He's back. He's free. And then this last one, this X-Men and Unlimited thing comes. And, you know, he's gone back to his original roots. This is the one we were talking about. He wants Alex. Mm-hmm. He's going back to the original hits, and he wants Alex because Alex's power is awesome. Alex's power juices me up. It was the first one that ever turned me into Sauron. I love that one. It's a great high. It didn't freak me out like Storm. It was just good. Now, the problem with Sauron at the moment is he's going nuts. You know, he's, he's having <laughs> illusions about Carl, and, you know, the whole Jekyll Hyde thing is, is, is starting to weigh on his brain. Yeah. So he has his minions kidnap Alex, brings him back, and uh, there's a great throwaway line where Whiteout, minion Whiteout, mm-hmm. refers to Lorna, and he refers to her as, quote, Zaladane's false sister, which I like. <laughs> well, that's the retcon where they try to undo Claremont's sister thing. I like to think that Sauron says it because if Lorna is the late Zaladane's actual sister, she has a claim to the throne of the Savage Land, and that would not be advantageous to Sauron. So he has reason to deny Lorna's relationship to Zaladane. Just my thought. I, 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 that makes perfect sense to me. I just I noted it. In the story, what's really interesting is now he's having delusions about Carl. Carl appears to him and, and scolds him. And Sauron's got it in his head that the only key to his humanity, to Carl's humanity, was Tanya. And so he has Carl in his brain say to him, so you killed her. But he didn't kill her. Uh, It was Toad who killed her. Mm -hmm. 
wasn't his fault at all. He didn't do that. That was done. He was used as an agent he was the by a bad yeah. man who did. He was weaponized. And here's where Gene and Scott show up, and they're they're fresh off their you know trip to the future. And this is why I read it. Uh, they go with Lorna. They want to rescue Alex. Yeah, this is where he says I hypnotized Wolverine. I, I don't like it. I, I don't think he did. After shenanigans ensue, it's a kind of cool issue because what he does is he, you know, it's it's the four X-Men he's fighting are Gene, Polaris, Alex, and Scott. And he, he gets into everybody's brain but Scott's and makes them play out their insecurities about themselves and, and about each other. It's a n- nice moment when they're sort of doing that, but they they all get better. For the record, an early John Francis Moore story before his run on X Force that I've talked about. He's just a he's a good yeah he's a good writer. Well, you know it, they get better and then they kick his ass, which you know is going to happen. But they don't want to kill him. Uh, instead, Gene goes poking around in his psyche and finds out that like us is not gone in his psyche. Like us still exists. This whole fantasy that they're entirely separate is bullshit. I shouldn't have said that. Uh, your mother would be mad if she found I swore on your podcast, but she won't listen and Katie won't rack me up. Katie, don't, yeah. don't rap. Okay, so. The idea that killing Tanya eradicated Lycos forever is not actually true. Lycos is still in Sauron's psyche. And that's the thing. And that's, and that's kind of a pretty story. In terms of this sort of tragic hero type Lycos-Sauron story that you have in these first half dozen stories about him, mm-hmm. that's appropriate you know that that's good because it does sort of fit in with the idea of you know we all fight with the duality of our natures and blah 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 and it's good and in his psyche lycos decides to fight him lycos and soran basically fist fight in their mindscape in their, in their, their shared mind. mindscape and eventually lycos grabs soran and jumps off a cliff to commit suicide gene goes back to objective reality and Sauron's there, and Sauron's alive. Yeah. But both Sauron and Carl, Carl are, are gone. So he's just the Pteranodon. And this is when I said, you know, he, he relate. we get to you saying he relates to dinosaurs. So he's just a regular Pteranodon now, and he tries to join the other Pteranodon. Yeah, he flies off into the Pteranodon flock. And they drive him away because they can smell the human on him. And so he's all alone. And that's the end. And that's the last I read of him for decades. Until like two weeks ago. Yes. And so I'm going to tell you, we're going to skip ahead. He has a lot of other stories. He pops up a lot of places, but nothing like super interesting for a while. There's an interesting story where he fights a lot with Wolverine. It's It starts in Uncanny X-Men 351, or arguably it, are, it starts in Kazar of the Savage Land. But, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's an Uncanny X-Men story. Basically, he's... Sparring with Wolverine, they use Sauron as comic relief. This is when he's starting to get goofy. Right. Which the fridging allows. He pretty much is pure comic relief now. The whole duality, tragedy, oh, am I a man or am I a monster thing's gone. He's just sort of a doofus. I think they just decided at a certain point that taking the pterodactyl man's plight seriously was just not worth doing. (laughs) Like I think they just decided, like, well, the love interest was killed off. Now he's just a pterodactyl man. We should make it funny because the idea that we're going to have this high-end prestige adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, except Mr. Hyde is a pterodactyl. I think it was just hard to sell that. 
Yes. And then and that gives them reason to they play around with them a lot in these issues that I read the last couple of days. I can tell you it's interesting. I think they're trying to find his voice and his personality. I think they do things with him. Some of them don't work well and some of them do. Mm -hmm. Before that, though, there is a very good Hidden Years story. It's set a few weeks after X-Men 61. Mm -hmm. And it sort of fills in the blanks. He didn't die when he fell off the cliff in Tierra del Fuego. He's in the Savage Land. And Bobby had gone solo to the Savage Land without telling the others because he's having a spat with the uh, X-Men over the weird, that insane last Neil Adams story from before, yeah, you know, from the 60s when the Xenox... Um, the Xenox invasion. Invasion, and it turns out Charles, Charles was alive, was alive the, the whole time, time, and Jean lied to them all about it. And Jean lied to him, and Jean lied to herself because... Jean has, that's a retcon and a half. Because Jean has a lot of thought bubbles out of the professor's death. She does a lot of talking in her (laughs) thought bubbles in the late, in 68 and 69 when I'm a little kid about how sad she is that Charles is dead. So screw that. But anyway, they're all uh, playing around. Candy is in this. This is a great candy story, I'm sure. It is a great candy story. Yeah, I mean, this is the one in which she has to wear uh, Jean's... uh, The Marble Girl costume, yeah. and, And says... Uh, just don't you have anything more stylish and green isn't my color green isn't really my color carl is hanging out with bobby and they're shirtless and and carl is now jack so Mm -hmm. this must be a trying series for bobby but it's john byrne the beefcake yeah so bobby is amnesiac blah 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 blah, like you do sauron is happy about that carl is happy about that because he doesn't want him to know he's sauron you know but unfortunately, as happens, Unis and Blob and uh, Masterminds in there, they get custody of Candy and Warren, Gene and Scott. And so, you know, that's bad. But at the same time, uh, remember, this is set a few weeks after the events of 60 and 61. So it's also a few weeks after the events of 62 and 63 that end, as they always do, with Magneto getting killed and the Savage Land mutates, uh, regressing back to what they are. But somehow they're back. Although it's a few weeks later, Amphibious <laughs> is back. My queen, it is I, Amphibious. Amphibious. Amphibious, my queen, it is I. I See, that's a good voice. That's a good voice for Amphibious. The Sauron voice from the the uh, the cartoon, series, the the voice that that they gave him in the cartoon, the Sauron voice is really not acceptable. I think Sauron needs a booming, high drama kind of stage yeah, actor well, voice. I, I think he can even be subtler. But here's the thing: he can't be doing that. You know, he's got that like, I Sauron will rule a lamb, you know, type thing. And it's it's just it's bad. It's just not him. He, you know, it's like it, it it's like a Rocky and Bullwinkle. You, you you remember Rocky and Bullwinkle? I, I do. Did. Yeah, and so it's like they gave him sort of fearless leader sort of voice, but he should have oh, more yeah. of a Mr. Peabody voice. You know, he should be condescending and a little mm-hmm. bit full of himself. And he should, you know, it's like, but I don't want to kill cats. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. That's his voice. And by the way, you know that because uh, back in the original story, when he goes to Scarsdale to kill Tanya's dad, Tanya they recognize his voice. Carl's voice. It's a, look, it's a pterodactyl with Carl's voice. 
Carl the non-pterodactyl did not talk like did not talk like this. And so you know, I I just I, I hate that voice. So anyway, so Amphibious saves Magneto, and Magneto decides, well, I got to take over this little island where Bobby in the Savage Land to as a new base of operations. Magneto squares off, and this works because he had been avoiding draining Bobby because he's good Carl, you know? Right. Good Carl has shown up for this story. And he doesn't want to drain Bobby even though he knows he's a mutant and he'd make him super powerful, but... That's how you get Saurons. Yeah. He's eating a pterodactyl and Bobby sees him. And Bobby says, what the hell, man? And he reaches over and touches him and Sauron drains all, accidentally drains all of Bobby's energy, turns into Sauron, which is good because this all happened when Magneto was attacking. So he hypnotized Magneto and so Magneto thinks he's fighting like Gene, Scott, and Hank. And meanwhile, Havoc and Lorna have been tracking Bobby to try and save them because, you know, nothing is cuter than the three of them fighting over Lorna. So uh, they crash their plane and Bobby finds them and seeing Lorna cures his amnesia, whatever. And then they bicker. You know, they see Sauron fighting Magneto and, and Havoc says basically, well, this is a great idea. Let's just watch these two guys yeah. take each other out. And Bobby says, no, no, we got to get into the fight. And Bobby jumps into the fight. So then they're all in the fight. And there's a great moment here in this story, because at one point, you know, Bobby, I think, says, you'll not succeed, Sauron. And Magneto says something along the lines of Sauron. Your name is pirated from a foolish fairy tale. That's funny. <laughs> you know. So, by the way, there's great uh, continuity in this issue, which is um, Magneto doesn't know who the hell Lorna is. Right. He's like, who because is remember, that? This is set right after X-Men 63. The Magneto who was telling Lorna she was their kid. Was a robot. Was a robot. He was robot Magneto. So this Magneto wouldn't know who, who it was. That's great. Uh, that's That's really nice. Anyway, so they all, you know, they fight, they fight, they fight. Turns out Carl had been tinkering with this power-up device because Carl is, you know, a tinkerer. And that's what Amphibious was using to power up Magneto. Havoc or Polaris, one of them breaks it. So Magneto starts to get weak again, which means Sauron can beat him. And Sauron sort of has him at a disadvantage. He's about to fall into the lava. And Magneto says, well, join forces with me and the two of us can kick these people's ass. And Soren says, mm, here's the thing, though. I, I don't think I want to kick these people's ass much. I, I think I want to stay here in the Savage Land. It's kind of nice here. So he lets Magneto fall into a volcano. And, of course, Magneto will get better. Like every time, yeah. Uh, but he doesn't get better that day. Anyway, But and he makes a half-hearted attempt to drain you know, Havoc and Lorna, but Bobby whacks him from behind and he just says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to hypnotize the three of you. I'm going to wipe this whole incident from your brain. This is the very like, okay, John moment where it's like he erases their memories so that they don't remember this story because they can't remember that Sauron survived. Right. Because they have to be surprised in the 70s. Right. But what I do like about it is the way they get to where they need to get is that he does this because he doesn't want to fight the X-Men anymore. He just wants to hang out in the Savage Land and be the king here. 
that shows some growth on his part. I don't want to be a supervillain. I want to be a dinosaur. But this is the last time Carl is ever going to be not goofy. We then get to my, what I, I wouldn't say they're my two favorite Sauron stories, but they're great. And one of them, of course, is Spider-Man and the X-Men. The story is basically, it's really good narratively because what happens is Spider-Man is only at the Jean Grey school to teach them ethics because they, he, well, Wolverine sent him, you know, to find out who were on a mission, but the mission's in the government. But the point is he's trying to teach them because those kids who I, I, I'm not familiar with most of those kids, but it's Glob and Quentin Quire, Kid Omega, and, mm-hmm. you know, a shark girl and, and all these kids, they don't want to make the world a better place. And he keeps trying to teach them with great power comes great responsibility. And so he takes them to the Museum of Natural History on a field trip because he's trying to teach them heavy handedly because he's Spider-Man that if they don't help their fellow human beings, they'll all become extinct like the dinosaurs. Well, of course, because it's Spider-Man, he goes to the museum at the precise moment when dinosaurs when dinosaurs are attack robbing the museum. The, yes. So <laughs> Stegron, who's a Spider-Man dinosaur villain, mm-hmm. because you've got to have one, and Soren are there. And Soren's out of the room when Stegron and the and Spidey and the the kids all start fighting. But he comes in and he says, "Hey, I've got the sample, Stegron," and he says, what the hell's going on? And Sauron basically saves the day for Stegron because he, he hypnotizes everybody and he takes them to Staten Island, which is um, Sauron's <laughs> new place. And I know, I know. Uh, it's and, funny. Uh, he's uh, renamed it New Savage Island. So there he is. And it turns out that Shark Girl has switched sides and she joins the uh, United Prehistoric insurgency because sharks are also that old yeah and then comes the fever dream that is spider-man and the x-men number two the most magical panel in in the last 20 years of comic books i believe comes up because spidey and the kids are trying to escape but stegron and shark girl and soron unleash this army of dinosaurs and the army of dinosaurs turns out to be staten islanders that they have turned into dinosaurs. They were able to steal <laughs> DNA from the Met and use it to perfect uh, what he calls, God love him, the Saurianization process, which is turning people into dinosaurs. And that leads, of course, to the greatest exchange ever. And here's why it's so great, right? You can read it aloud if you want, but everybody who listens to this show of yours knows what the line is. He says something along the lines of, wait, you can, you can... <laughs> You can change DNA on the fly. Well, with tech like that, you could cure cancer. And Sauron says, but I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. And that is perfection. And that is the moment when he becomes the perfect villain. Because what he's saying is, you know, Spider-Man's here is going, oh, with great power comes great responsibility. And Sauron is saying, I think not. Um, I am a villain. I am a supervillain in comic book. Look closely at me. I am a pterodactyl man. I am riding a triceratops who used to be a certified public accountant from Staten Island. I am not about to make appropriate life choices. 
I am not someone who does things that work out well. I am a comic book supervillain. I'm here to turn people yeah. into dinosaurs. That's all I'm here to do. Yeah. You know, you can say, oh, why didn't Superman win the war for the Americans? You know, well. Because it's a fucking comic book. Sauron has an answer for that. It's like, I don't want to win the war for the Americans. You know, you get to that existential problem of superhero comics, right? Why don't the superhero comics cure the genocides that go on, the, the monstrous inequities in life? Sauron, on the other hand, is like, I don't have to worry about any of this because I'm a dinosaur man. And that's all I have to be. And that's what I want to be. And it's that moment when he really finds himself. What I like about this is that they had played around with him in stories I read recently that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you a couple examples. There's this um, story. It's by uh, Bendis. There's the Bendis Avengers stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the thing. It's like, this is like in 2008 years before this Spider-Man. 2004 or five, yeah. Okay, well, it's it's a long time before. It's about 10 years earlier, yeah. Yeah, so Wolverine and the Avengers go to um, the Savage Land because Electro is busted uh, Carl out of the raft where he was serving time, and he's in the Savage Land, and he's Carl. He's not Sauron. Right. And But he's evil. He's evil as hell because he says the Weapon X program, and I didn't read the Weapon X ones, yeah. uh, but the Weapon X program was so evil that I've decided I'm just going to screw this and kill them all, which is very uncarved. Right. So I told you to skip the Weapon X stuff because it honestly is just, I believe what I said on Twitter to someone was, I'm not going to make my 61-year-old father read Frank Terry's Weapon X. I find it to be... um this book is, to me, the worst of that excess where it was like, in the same way that the 90s was like everything was heavy metal magazine and there was good elements of that and bad elements of that, the aughts had this thing where it was like, everything is going to shock you, shocking, shocking. And the Weapon X title, Weapon X 2002, really is like, it's just, it's chock full of rape. It's one of those things where I just don't, it makes me feel like unclean to read it a little bit. And it also twists all of the characters in it very out of character. And so the Sauron thing there is they do experiments on him that enhance his powers, but he loses his intelligence and right. he becomes like just a monster. And then over the course of Weapon X, he gets his brain back. And eventually the personalities of Carl and Sauron are sort of like unified by the end i don't mind that i like that idea that carl and thoron are unified yeah i'm fine with that too but you shouldn't have though a carl walking around being evil in that right way. that didn't work for me I, I didn't like it at all i mean you know and the only thing i do like about that story and don't worry carl and so kids Carl and Sauron lose because they're bad. Carl always was a little bit of a shady guy. I mean, you go back to that original story in the 60s, he's draining his patients of their life force. But there's a difference between that and Sauron's, like, mustache-twirling villainy, and I don't think that when it's Carl, it should be that. I agree completely. And I will tell you, the only thing I like about this story is that this is the one I just went back and checked because I thought this was right. This is the one where all of a sudden... He breathes flame. Yeah. Like, now he can breathe flame. Sure. Why can he breathe flame? Because Godzilla can breathe flame? I, I don't know. But Why not? Just can't. Why not? Sauron always has new powers. Yeah, he has new powers. 
So I showed dad the uh, X-Men Green story earlier and he laughed out loud when Sauron suddenly was telekinetic now. Yeah. It's like a plot point. And he goes, you didn't know I was telekinetic because nobody knew Sauron was telekinetic because he'd never been telekinetic before. That to me is Jerry acknowledging that every time Sauron pops back up, he has a new power in every yeah. single one of these stories. Oh, it's great. It's great. <laughs> um, I want to get to that because I do love that story, but I want to get back to that Spider-Man and the X-Men story because it's so... So incredibly insane. I get what you're saying to bring us back to it, which is that you love where the character wound up, but there were a few false starts in the middle. And I think that one of them was that Bendis Ark in New Avengers. One of them was Wolverine in the X-Men, which leads into Spider-Man in the X-Men. And I want to talk about that because I actually like that, but they're playing with him. I don't hate it for Sauron, but they're still figuring out what to do. Right. I I actually don't like the story, but I actually think uh, I like it because... Sauron is funny. Right. The way he's funny when he says, I want to turn people into dinosaurs in that. And I think that's a good direction for him because I think I think he's a little too goofy for where he needs to end up. But I think that, you know, I'll say, I think where Jerry Duggan has him in that recent story is mm-hmm. the perfect place for him because he's goofy, but he's dangerous. And I think that's good he is a dangerous if you were if you went back to me at nine he would still scare me he's cool looking as can be and he would scare a nine-year-old when used properly and he does in that i just want to get back to this because i love this story there's so many things about it one is of course because he find because spider-man finds out they're you know these are people he lets them take him prisoner and now they're going to do horrible things to spider-man and the kids right so they're all prisoners. But what happens is Stegron and Sauron start bickering, as dinosaur villains will do. And the best thing is, and I think this is a reference to the animated voice, right? Mm-hmm. There's a moment where they're quarreling, and Sauron makes fun of the way Stegron talks, because he hisses his ass the way Sauron did. He says, quote, you sound like an effeminate cartoon snake. <laughs> and of course, what's going on though is Sauron, and I find this funny but too off-putting and too jokey, and frankly a little creepy because I don't mean I, I mean I shouldn't take these things seriously. He's a dinosaur man in a cartoon, but turns out he's in love with Shark Girl, and I don't know anything about Shark Girl other than this story, but she's a child. And Carl, we know Tanya was 27 one, once upon a time. She's uh-huh. years younger than Carl. Carl's like a doctor on Park Avenue. Carl should not be interested in some high school half shark, half girl person. That's, that's I agree. Audrey in the extreme. And, and frankly, it's just creepy. And then, of course, she takes advantage of that because it turns out, of course, shark girl is a double agent. She was. She she wasn't really with the dinosaurs. She was going undercover to to stop them. And she plays up to Stegron, right? And right. so, of course, she plays up to Stegron so that he'll reverse the tax so they can turn people from dinosaurs back to people. And the two of them start to fight, which is fun because then the two of them basically wipe each other out. They hypnotize each other into They hypnotize paralysis. each other until yeah. they're all done. and and and. Spidey and the kids get to watch one of them says, uh, oh, it's like Godzilla versus Rodan, only smaller and kind of goofy. 
which is about right. And so that's Spider-Man versus X-Men. And I do think that the uh, Wolverine and the X-Men story vis-a-vis Sauron is similar, although different in that Sauron doesn't have, like, he tries to pucker up to kiss Shark Girl and, <laughs> you know, big cartoon lips. Um, Sauron is not a sight you really want to show to a little kid. But in the Wolverine and the X-Men story, what I like is, all the kids, half the kids have gone off the awful Hellfire it's Academy. It's the Hellfire Academy, right? He's their evil science teacher. And he's the evil science teacher, but he gets some great lines. I wrote them down. I love his little outfits. I think that oh, Sauron yeah, he's got a in a science a teacher lab coat he wears glasses and tie now. is, that's great. He's got a shirt, tie, glasses, and uh, he's in the teacher's lounge in one scene, and they're asking <laughs> for quotes from the teachers, and he says, these young mutants are sad. A sad and pathetic statement on the fortitude of today's youth. It makes me glad I never had any children of my own I allowed to live. <laughs> you know, that's kind of <laughs> starting to get the vibe, I think. But then I'm like, wh- who did he have children with? I guess someone in the Savage Land. Just Probably. Him, you know, I, I I don't, he was around there for a while. I, I don't want to go there, to be honest with you. We don't but, really uh, want to go there. But I also like his quote when he, he introduces himself to his students. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna read that one, but you should. You read it. You should read it. Okay. 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 He's the subjugation through science teacher, and what is he? Subjugation through science with Dr. Carl Lyko, second period. I am Sauron, supreme ruler of this classroom, master of all second period. In this class, I. (laughs) In this class, I will teach you to wield the most powerful and deadly weapon known to man: science. That's great. Here's why I like this story so much for Sauron is I think he taps into something that you get in. I think there are two stories recently that really worked with this guy. What it is, is there's a moment when they're torturing uh, Quentin Choir mm-hmm. because he's been bad. He's in detention. That's what it is. He's been. Yeah, it's detention. So detention at the Hellfire Academy involves torture. And Sauron is torturing him. And he's screaming. And there's a mojo world type lady there and yes and uh she's she's filming it of course because you know that's what they do she says can you get i i want to see the screams again i said but here's the thing and he says you know oh of course and and he gets little lines you know he he says his life force tastes like pink licorice with just a hint of chili pepper the thing is though if you didn't see what he was saying it's scary Mm -hmm. he's torturing a child I think that's the thing. I think Sauron needs to be a pompous, goofy villain who's self-aware of his own goofiness, but who is also genuinely pretty scary. Yeah, I like it as a throwback to that Marvel fanfare story where he's doing the scary stuff to them, de-evolving them, draining them in the torture machine. The tone of this book is never quite, uh, Jason Aaron's Wolverine the X-Men, I mean, it never quite hits for me, and I find Quentin Quire just, like, deeply aggravating. So I'm mixed on this book, but I will say that I think it was a very good book for some of these ancillary villain characters in particular. I mean, I've talked about how I don't like what it does for Husk, but the Toad and Husk arc is a good arc for Toad. And similarly, this is a very good arc for Sauron. It is odd to see them together in this comedy book after the last time that Toad and Sauron were together when Toad murdered Tanya and turned Carl back into Sauron. But that's just, it's been 30 years and we got to move on, you know? 
And what also what's interesting here is that Toad kicks Sauron's ass. Yeah. In this book. Yeah. Which is wow. And he gets one last good line, right? The X-Men invade and they blow up the Hellfire Academy and they invade, though. They, they're bringing Krakoa along. You know, they're bringing the lawn around. The little along. Krakoa. Yeah, yeah. Right. But he's big enough so that he can uh, when they blow up the island, he carries off all the good guys and bad guys and saves everybody. Right. Including mm-hmm. Sauron, you see. And they're all sitting there in the last scene where Krakoa's like saved everybody. And Sauron has one last good quote, which is, thank God I don't have to grade any more term papers. I like that. It's good. He doesn't want to grade term papers. He wants to turn people into dinosaurs. Like, again, it wasn't a good long-term career for him. Like, can you imagine Sauron having to publish? He wouldn't want to. Uh, He would never have published. Honestly, he'd he'd have procrastinated forever. Now, that does lead me to the true apotheosis of Sauron, which is, I love this Jerry Doggins story. And you, you get a glimpse of it in that Deadpool shot when Deadpool is uh, recruiting people to be. Yeah, the Kelly Thompson Deadpool story during King in Black. You know, he says, I thought you just wanted to turn people into dinosaurs. He says, but if the world is black goo, how can I turn people into dinosaurs? <laughs> and, I, you know, I like that. And then Duggan runs with it like crazy. And he he has him. There's this, these two girls, the nature girl and the nature girl, girl and curse. Yeah. Yeah. And they're terrorizing an oil refinery, but he's pissed because it um, <laughs> because it was ruining his lab. And so he's decided to attack the oil refinery, too. And he sort of teams up with these girls and the curse girl. She's flying on top of him and says something about, uh, I probably have to explain to you why I like it bad. And he says, <laughs> you don't have to explain to me. Being bad is fun. And that's it. <laughs> so is fun. Good. He's having fun being bad. It's like now he's incorporated his, you know, he can turn back and forth now if he wants. He doesn't want to because if he turns back to Carl, he won't turn. He's going to feel bad. Right. Yeah. He's not going to have any fun as Carl. So I really like that. And I, I, there's one last story I really like. Would you like me to bring it up? Yeah, and I read sure. it last night late and I loved it. And it was not my kind of story, but I think it really it really was a perfect way to use Sauron. And it's from something from last year called Wolverine Black, White and Blood, which was a limited mm-hmm. series. This issue actually was this year, though. So it's, okay. a, it's like a mini series that oh, all right, started fine. up. So yeah. from this year. It's just Wolverine and, and Sauron have a fight in the Savage Land. Mm-hmm. And it's drawn with manga type style. Uh, the artists, who I'd never heard of, but I, I just want to give a shout out because I thought they did a beautiful job. And it's someone named, oh, I, I took a note, but I can't, I'm not, Siguera? Paolo Siguera. Paolo Siguera is the penciler. And then someone, Drew Jr. is the anchor. And it's done in, obviously, it's done in black, white, and red. That's the black, white, and blood And the red series, yeah. Someone named uh, Andres Moss. And I thought they did a beautiful job. And the writer is someone named Stephen S. DeKnight. DeKnight, yeah. And what I love about this story is that they're fighting, but they have witty, self-aware dialogue throughout. And Soren's dangerous. I think Soren's not really dangerous when he's with a bunch of X-Men, because eventually one of them is going to get him from behind or mm-hmm. one of the really powerful ones like gene or storm is just going to kick his ass but he's a good match for someone like wolverine he's he's almost impossible to kill 
he's big, he's tough, he's strong, he's good at clawing people and biting their heads off and things like that. And the two of them have a nice fight, which is not, again, really my style. But at the end, after they, you know, Garak, come, they real, they stop fighting because Garak is, is messing with dinosaurs. And so they go off and they kick Garak's ass. And then one of them says, so we done here? And the other one says, yeah, we're done here. They run towards each other to try and hack each other to death again. And that's how it ends. And he says, okay, Carl. And Sauron says, don't call me Carl. Is there about to engage? And that's the Sauron I like to see in the 21st century is a self-aware, goofy guy who knows he's goofy, but also knows that he can actually rip your arm off in a second or hypnotize you into committing suicide. And that's a pretty cool thing to be, is to be that dangerous, that goofy, and that witty. And that's uh, those are my favorite uh, Sauron stories. Thank you, Dad. That was great. I got nothing. <laughs> Well, I think now is a good time for us to get into the listener questions. I am trying to limit them more these days, but I got so many fun ones for this episode that I'm just going to let her rip and we'll see how many we can do. How about? Because you know what? It's not like you have anywhere to be. I know because (laughs) all you have to do is hang out with me after we finish recording. That's pretty much it. We're just going to watch TV after. We're just going to watch TV. So uh, full disclosure, I I cracked uh, one of your brother-in-law's your sister's husband i'm in my office right there's a fridge over in the next room and because then that that part of the house has uh, the guest room that right. my and, sister and, and her husband's um, stay in so uh there's a fridge and uh, my son-in-law leaves uh exotic beers in the fridge whenever he comes to visit he buys like dozens of them and they're all in here so i'm having an exotic beer it's like a microbrewery ipa kind of like blackberry whatever exactly exactly yeah this this is a stout uh, a firestone stout. it was quite good limited release and you know when my brother-in-law my sister's husband is visiting the two of us kind of look for a beer and we're like Gotta be a Corona or something in. No, <laughs> all that's the there is Max's yeah. chic beers or my like hard <laughs> seltzers I've left behind. So yeah, you're kind. Of, I think there's a cider or two I've left in the garage. Oh sure, sure, but but, but in terms of actual beer, this, this yeah this, no this hit the spot. But yeah, okay. I saw you having a white claw, so I figured I could have a beer. This is a substance friendly podcast. Yeah. Uh, you know, within reason. Please drink responsibly, Zalagang. So let's get to it. Anthony Oliveira writes. Oh, hi, Anthony. He's funny. He is funny. Dear Mr. Goldsmith and son, note to Connor that I'm Canadian. I know you're Canadian, babe. And therefore, all cartoon moose sounds are appropriate. Thank you for discussing this very important character whose whole situation was an important eye-opening moment on my journey to discovering what a scaly is. Tanya is a very lucky woman, in my opinion. (laughs) My question is about Sauron's name. Obviously, it's opposite to his status as a dinosaur, or I guess properly a pterosaur. But we also know for a fact, and from very early in his character history, that Lycos chose it as an homage to Tolkien because it was the evilest person he could think of. Sauron means the abhorred one, a pun on his true name, Maron. But Tolkien is very 
specific in his appendices that his ow is a Germanic one, like Fraulein, and that therefore characters like Sauron and Smaug are pronounced Sauron and Smaug, both with ow, like stub your toe ows. So is Lycos mispronouncing his own name, or is he confusingly using the Tolkien pronunciation and not the dinosaur pronunciation? Is he Sauron or Sauron? Thank you for your attention on this important matter. Your obedient servant, A. I, if you'll note, say it's Sauron because I know he's named after the Lord of the Rings character, but everybody says Sauron because he's a dinosaur, and I'm going to say it's both, probably, depending on the context. He probably says Sauron, but no one else does. Isn't there a moment when he is trying to do a hero turn and he changes his name to Sauron, like, Soar on. Yeah, that's um, that's an Age of Apocalypse, I think, isn't it? Oh, okay. But I would just note, yeah, if it's Sauron, S O A R, then it would be pronounced Sauron. Sauron, for yeah. sure. Other than that, I have no opinions. I think he says Sauron and is trying to make that catch on, and none of the other characters get it because they're like, like what a dinosaur, like you know, get yeah. it together, my guy. We have a couple of questions about his name, so I'm going to do them all in a row, basically. Zach Jenkins of Comics XF writes, Hey, Connor and Connor's dad. Sauron is famously named after Sauron from Lord of the Rings because Carl is a big old nerd. My question is this. If he chose his name from a more contemporary to his creation big old nerd novel, what would his name be? I'm asking about Dune. What Dune character would Carl Lycos the Vampire Pteranodon name himself after? Is it Paul? <laughs> Seems a little pedestrian. I think I think Harkonnen has an edge to it. Less impressive than Sauron, though. I think it would be difficult to pick one from Dune. I think the scariest people in that are the women. Are sandworm. And the worms. Could he call himself Sandworm? That sounds almost like Sauron. It kind of does, yeah. But I feel like, you know, Reverend Mother wouldn't really work, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> What's in the box? Pterodactyls. Derek Chan writes, Dear Connor, an esteemed guest, his father, Jim. Long-time listener, first-time question submitter, but with Connor's much-vaunted father finally making his podcast debut, I just had to do it. Hmm. Sauron openly declares that he named himself after the Lord of the Rings villain, so it's safe to assume he's a big Tolkien fan. However, he did so under the assumption that Tolkien's Sauron was the ultimate villain of the writer's mythos. This was in the late 60s, before the Silmarillion was published in the 70s, and the more powerful Morgoth, Sauron's once-and-future boss, was properly introduced. <laughs> Is it safe to assume that Sauron, that's the Carl Lycos Sauron, had undergone his initial transformation after the Silmarillion was published, he would have christened himself Morgoth? Does Sauron resent he can no longer truly claim to share the name of the ultimate evil of Middle-earth, but is too embarrassed to simply change his name? Have any of Sauron's villainous peers made fun of his Tolkien fanboyism? Has Sauron ever gotten into trouble with Tolkien's estate for flagrantly taking the name? Or more to the point, has Marvel Comics? Thanks for providing hours and hours and hours of entertainment <laughs> <massive> insight. <laughs> Into the very <laughs> cast of characters from my childhood and apparently adulthood favorite comic franchise, along with the Discord community that sprung out of it. Also, apologies to the long pedantic line of questioning and good fortune with all endeavors going forward. Yours truly, Derek C. I just love that. And so I, I, I love it. the question about the law because it did cross my mind. Why didn't the Tolkien estate sue him? I think that on action figures, he has to be called Marvel Sauron. Okay. The way that Polaris is always Marvel's Polaris because you can't really trademark the name Polaris. But Sauron, you would think, is like a Tolkien estate trademark. So I don't know. I Here's the thing. I think in the 60s, comics were so bullshitty as a medium in terms of like this kind of like no one was chasing them down. I mentioned in the Candy Southern episode in Candy's introduction story. 
they're literally singing monkeys lyrics on the page. And I assure you that nobody paid the monkeys to use those lyrics. So I think it was just not a medium that IP lawyers were super keeping track of because it was seen as sort of like cheap and for kids and whatever. And then by the time they would have gotten litigious about it, which is around when Peter Jackson was making those movies, everybody just assumed it was Sauron because of a dinosaur. Like they hadn't read that 60s story where he's like, because of Tolkien, which is like, Roy, you don't say it out loud. You just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Asher Elbine writes, hi, Connor and Connor's dad, longtime listener, first time caller, very excited to talk about our favorite histrionic transforming pterodactyl. I basically could not let this episode pass without writing in. Soren has always delighted me for his sheer enthusiastic commitment to his bit, the jorts, his desire to turn people into dinosaurs, and of course his decision to steal that name from Tolkien's big villain, which is hilariously presumptuous given his subsequent comics career. Also hilarious, he was invented to be a vampire the X-Men could fight, only for them later to actually meet Dracula, who naturally stuck around and rendered him completely superfluous. There are no ongoing stories about Wolverine fighting the minions of Sauron, you know? I mean, actually, as we pointed out, there were some about him fighting the Savage Land mutates, but I get what you're saying. As a result, I've always felt there's a core of melancholy to that goofy idiot, a deep inferiority complex, an undertone of desperate compensation that fuels his urge to scream his name at every available opportunity. It feels like a lot of Soren's appearances, for perhaps understandable metatextual reasons, are him reminding people that he exists. Frankly, Soren feels entirely like a bit at this point, and maybe a conscious one on Lycos's part. Someone who's actually comfortable and secure in being evil incarnate probably wouldn't announce it quite so much, and it feels like there's some meat there. Here's my question then. Does Soren have any potential as a more developed villain, or is his best use as a delightful gimmicky weirdo who pops up now and then? Should we not look a gift weridactyl in the mouth? One more question. Given my job as a science and paleontology writer, I am obsessed with a simple question. Do you think it chaps Sauron's ass at all that he can turn people into dinosaurs, but that as a pterodactyl, he isn't one? Likewise, do you think it annoys him that he's a completely unscientific caricature of an actual pteranodon? They seriously don't look anything like that. I've literally been waiting all year for this one. Can't wait. All best, Asher. I love that you've identified something very true, which is that he can turn anybody into a dinosaur except himself, for he will always be a pterosaur. There's something kind of tragically beautiful to that. I don't think that this character is one that you want to take super seriously anymore. I just don't think it's the right way forward for the character. I think they tried it a couple times. It never quite worked after that X-Men Unlimited story in the early 90s that I think is great. After that, you really just kind of want to make him fun. I like what Jerry's doing with him in X-Men Green, and I hope that when X-Men Green returns, Sauron will be part of it, because it's a controlled chaos thing, right? Like, that moment where he and Black Mamba are, like, looking in each other's eyes, and she's, like, a little close right now, and he's like, do not be concerned, Sauron is a sapiosexual. (laughs) And she goes, so am I. Like, first of all, I want their whole rom-com now. I want to see the whole, like, I need... Sauron and Black Mamba on a date but also that's funny he's not just a pterodactyl like waving his wings around he's also this guy he's a scientist he's got stuff going on he's upset that they broke his lab and he'll help these kids if it fulfills his goals and he'll help them be bad if they want to be because being bad is fun first of all I thought it was a great letter I thought it was great questions I don't think it bothers him that he uh is a pterosaur, not a dinosaur, because uh, to be honest with you, I think science, he's real good with gadgets, but I, I'm not sure science is his strong suit. I don't think he knows much about dinosaurs, yeah. despite turning people into them. But um, what I do think, and it gets to it, I, I agree completely. There's one line in that Hidden Years story 
where he's musing about his life. And he says to himself, he's hanging out with amnesiac Bobby. And he's like, I saved Bobby, which he did. But he muses, and I used to be the X-Men's, quote, greatest foe, end quote. And he wasn't. <laughs> there is an insecurity about him that I think is, frankly, charming. Yeah. I do think that he's constantly yelling these ridiculous things about, that's why I like, I, that's why the line, you know, master of the second period is so great because all of his grandiosity has been reduced to yelling this to a bunch of 14 year old children. The thing about Sauron is he's aware, you know, when he says, I don't want to cure cancer, I want to turn people into dinosaurs. I think on some level he's aware that it's cause at the end of the day, he's sort of a screw up. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think he, I think he's aware that, being witty is a good thing to take away from the fact that he's essentially goofy. And I, I, I would say in terms of where you go with the character, I like him as an echo terrorist. I think he's a good echo terrorist. I think if you look at that Wolverine episode where issue where he decides not to kill Sauron because Sauron says, and why do you want to impose your values of civilization on a, on a world that doesn't really necessarily want them that there is something valid in what he says and that occasionally he does say valid things but i think i agree with connor that i think he has to be there has to be uh goofiness what i would like is self-aware goofiness i know mm -hmm. i'm a pterodactyl man right I, i'm aware of that i know that's goofy i also know that i can rip your arm off with my sharp teeth and I can hypnotize you and make you kill yourself. And that's why yeah. I liked <laughs> that um, that Wolverine, that recent short Wolverine story. There was banter. There was there was some mutual respect. And also he was owning to a certain extent his Carlness while saying at the very end, don't call me Carl. Right. I didn't like it quite as much as I liked the Duggan story uh, in the scroll down. Mm hmm. Thing, but I, I liked it a lot and it, it's a fairly serious story yeah Joseph Fleming writes firstly hello the goldsmiths I've been in love with Sauron ever since I heard his dulcet tones in X-Men the animated series a beautiful okay. voice a siren song one I sing to my boyfriend when I've been reading X-Men green to him out loud on the sofa hi Ben now, my question to you is about the complex nature of Sauron versus Carl Lycos, the Argentinian hypnotherapist. Now, we know that when he turns to Sauron, he goes absolutely bonkers and turns into a telekinetic hypnodinosaur. Is this a split personality deal? Dissociative identity disorder? Possession by the mutated pteranodons from his past? A pteranodon force? Was this the basis for him and Charles on Project Mutant? What is the deal? Also, when was the last time we even saw Carl? Has he been confined to the bin, leaving us with the glory of Sauron forever? Is he just never going to be seen again? Will they keep Sauron topped up with mutant husks if he's ever on Krakoa, keeping Carl away? Is that ethical? Who deserves body time? Also, shout out to the Shakespeare quoting Sauron from AOA, who exists for no reason but exists forever in my heart. Love and Dinosaurs, Yosef Summers. The way I read it is that, yeah, it is essentially a split personality the way that it was previously dealt with. But after Carl's psyche, after that X-Men Unlimited story where Gene's in their head and Carl grabs Sauron and jumps off the cliff with him and kills them both, 
it seems to me like they've been more kind of unified. We haven't seen Carl in a long time, though. I think that once Carl lost Tanya, he felt less of an urge to try and assert himself. I think, and I could be wrong because of everything I know about this stuff I learned in the last 36 hours, but I think the last <laughs> time he appeared was in Ben Riley Scarlet Spider, which I think was less than 10 years ago. Well, there you go. I haven't read that because it's a Spider-Man book. Carl has infiltrated a Navy lab. He's an assistant to the guy that Ben Riley is looking for, but because Ben Riley is a Spider-Man, obviously he's going to blunder coincidentally into a villain because that's sort of his jam, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Spider-Man doesn't bother trying to explain why villains show up wherever he is. He's learned how to turn into Sauron by himself in that in that issue, which is interesting because that's new. Well, it's from Wep- it's again, it's from Weapon X. Okay, all right, so that's fine. But he's learned how to do it. Yeah. And what happens is he sees Spider-Man or Scarlet Spider, whatever he is, sees the spider clone and says, ah, you came here to mess with my plan to use this Navy lab for my own purposes and turns himself into Soren and uh, Ben blows him up. And Carl is pretty Soron-y <laughs> in that, <laughs> you know, it, it's all, there. it's Team Soron and I think Carl is, is on for the ride now. Yeah, I think he's just sort of given up a little bit. And that is something that is a little sad if we focus on it. So I get why they don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I agree with you. To have Carl sort of relevant, it's hard without Tanya. And Tanya got bridged a long time ago. Exactly. It's hard without Tanya. And... It just emphasizes the Jekyll and Hyde thing that isn't really what people care about with the character anymore. They want the character to be fun. They also already have Kirk Connors, the lizard, over in Spider-Man, who is essentially the same character. And Kirk Connors is all about not wanting to be the lizard, right? So I think that it makes Sauron somewhat more distinctive to just be like, well, he's a scientist guy, and then he turns into an evil pterodactyl, and it's fine. He's not that torn up about it anymore. You know what I mean? I think that's probably the way to go. And Carl has always been someone who wanted to survive, except when it meant Tanya might get hurt. And now that's no longer a concern. So I think it's easier for Soren to convince him to, you know, come along for the ride. Patrick Matsutani writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed dad. That's funny. (laughs) Esteemed guest. I've got a question about Sauron and Silver Age villains on the whole. I've long been obsessed with the collection of evil gorilla characters that existed DC Comics because of a boom in the 60s where any comic with a gorilla on the cover sold like hotcakes, which now leaves us with several gorilla villains that stuck, like Gorilla Grodd and the Ultra Humanite. This seems to be less of the case at Marvel, where the Silver Age villains who stuck around seemed mostly to have been monologuing queens who lived for the drama and have magnificent capes, like Magneto and Doctor Doom. This brings me to Sauron. Do you think his creation was an attempt at capturing an appeal to a cultural moment or fascination with playing with fantastical elements in superhero comics? Or did Wright Thomas just say, yo, what if Dracula was a pterodactyl and also named after the Lord of the Rings villain? Because it's hard to imagine he came about because of a deep desire to explore the interiority of a guy who turns to a dinosaur and eats people. 
Also, why do you think he's managed to come back at all when other villains from the Silver Age never lasted? He doesn't boast a huge Zaladane total, but he's appeared in multiple adaptations, and people seem to really get a kick out of him to this day. Has the power of his sheer absurdity kept him safe from permanent obscurity? Thanks for all the hard work you put into this podcast. It is a highlight of my week every week, and I constantly find myself re-listening. And thank you, Mr. Connor's dad, for fostering a passion in your son that's found its way to so many others. Much love. That's very sweet. Thank you. That's very nice of him. So, as was mentioned by Asher in the earlier question, Sauron exists mostly because the Comics Code Authority wouldn't let them do an actual vampire story. I told you this. Yeah. You didn't know this. This is the only thing ages, about the X-Men I've ever ago. told you. You didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Because my dad is a Sauron expert. He was like, well, you know why he's a pterodactyl? And I was like, no, dad. Why is he a pterodactyl? Tell me about it. So, Dad, do you want to tell them about why he's a pterodactyl? Yeah, as Roy Thomas uh, tells the story, he and Adams wanted him to be a kind of a bat creature. Like a man bat. A man bat. But remember that, so back in 55, in order to address the heat uh, from uh, congressional hearings in which Bill Gaines had been kind of taken out, hung out to dry, the industry sort of imposed the Comics Code Authority. And for 17 years, that meant no monsters <laughs> to speak of. And when they ran the idea of Sauron the Man-Bat up the chain, they said it was too much like a vampire. So they made him a pterodactyl instead because they wanted him to be able to fly like a bat. And... You know, it's funny you say that because I actually think it's great that he's pterodactyl. I do think that's why he has survived. That he looks so cool is why he survived. Yeah. Because, you know, it's funny you say that about the gorillas. There used to be a site, I imagine it still exists, I don't know if, if they have new content, that was called Superman is a Dick or Super Dickery. The Super Dickery, yeah. Yeah, and one of, besides the Superman is a, a Dick memes, they had something that was along the lines of, everything's better with gorillas. And it was about all the gorillas in DC Comics. And I actually have always thought the reason Sauron's so great is that, frankly, everything's better with dinosaurs. Because everything is better with dinosaurs. I mean, make no mistake, uh, there is no light entertainment that can't be improved by a pterodactyl flying through. And if you put pants on it, that's even better. So that's what I think. Yeah, I would agree. I think that there's also just like a madcap silver aginess to him that a lot of the Claremont villains don't have. Claremont's villains are silly in a different way. They're silly like Celine is silly. There's a camp and a drama and over the topness to a Claremont villain. But like this guy's a pterodactyl in pants. He just is. It's like a very 60s moment that 80s comics aren't going to give you. And I mean, I think that part of it is that Claremont used him because he was cool and fun. In that early part of the Claremont run, when Claremont's still getting his sea legs, he tries to use the three or four mm -hmm. villains from the 60s that seemed like they had legs. Juggernaut, the Sentinels, Magneto, which it takes him several tries to get right before mm -hmm. he finally revolutionizes the character, and Sauron. I mean, those are really the characters, that, that the villains that he plucks out. You don't see a Claremont arc about Factor 3, because who gives a shit? <laughs> Factor 3 is so awful. <laughs> it's so bad. It's like, who cares? Yeah. So that is why you see Sauron more, because he is in the Claremont run. 
And that is just going to automatically elevate the status somewhat. It's a run of comics that just about everybody reads. It was some of the first Marvel comics I ever read because dad bought me those Marvel Masterworks. And that's like probably volume two or three of the Uncanny X-Men Masterworks because that's when they're separated in Antarctica. Yeah. The day the X-Men died. It's like that whole arc. Three, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Can I add something? Yeah, always, Dad. Just jump in. Because he's a pterodactyl in pants, he's great to toss into cameos when you have a rogues gallery type cameo where you want to show a bunch of villains and get, you know, uh, an immediate reaction. You know, there's a, that very funny Patton Oswalt thing about MODOK. Mm-hmm. There's a panel. They're showing the criminal technology uh, show Expo. And it's just kind of a throwaway. They're wandering around because they're doing something at this Expo. Co-written, I must note, co-written by Patton Oswalt and friend of the pod, Jordan Bloom, my guest on the Sally Blevins episode, which is an underrated banger. Oh, good job. Very funny, Jordan. I liked it. But here's the thing. You can put the pterodactyl in pants in the background and instantly you know who he is. You know how a lot of characters in these comic books, because you have different artists, you're not 100% sure who they are when right. you see him in a crowd scene with no context around it. Sauron, you always know exactly who you've got. Yeah, it's not unlike what I've said about some of the student characters who've survived, like Dust and Pixie and Armor, is that they have these really striking visual designs. So even if all of the students younger than Gen X, there's like 80 of them and they all compete for page time, the ones that have a strong visual where it's like Pixie has pink hair and wings, you recognize her in a group shot no matter what. Mm -hmm. Sauron is like that. He is a pterodactyl. There's only one. There was also Dinosaur from the Great Lakes Avengers, but I think she's been dead for a long time. Jordan Broadway writes, Dear Connor and the most anticipated guest in Cerebro history, Connor's dad, can they just retcon Sauron into a mutant already? Near as I can tell, his origin story makes much more sense if you assume he has an energy absorption X gene, which just happened to be overloaded by close contact with a pterodactyl. Kind of like Rogue and Carol Danvers, but funnier. I don't necessarily need all X characters to be mutants or mutant adjacent, but in an era where the Savage Land plays a sizable role in the Krakoan economy, where Nanny and Fabian Cortez get to be the comic relief in ongoing team books, it seems like now should be Carl's time to shine. He just doesn't particularly have a dog or raptor in the race. Thanks so much to Connor for all the hard work and to James for hooking him on these weird comics featuring politics and a dinosaur man. I think that they've found a good alternative, which is having him cross paths with Nature Girl and her new little crew, because that's a way to tie him into the plot now and give him stakes that don't necessarily have anything to do with being a mutant. But I do wish that he was, if only because I would love to have him on Krakoa hanging out. I think he's a delight. But, you know, I I think at this point he's pretty codified as a Spider-Man style mutate where it was like the Pteranodon bite that did it, not anything innate to him. So the question is just find ways to put him into the story. And I think this recent twist where Nature Girl needed allies who were not on Krakoa and has come across Sauron, I think is a good way to go. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. I I think there's too much... I mean, you can retcon anything, I suppose, but they make such a big deal anyway in the old comics about how Tanya got attacked by the pterodactyls, but it was Carl who got bit because he was protecting her and that she would be like him if she'd gotten bit. 
Justin Dumond writes, hi, Connor and guest. I have so many questions about this ridiculous character, but here are two. One, do you think there are other weird pterodactyl energy vampire hypnotists out there in the Marvel Universe who aren't as melodramatic as Sauron and thus feed off the mutant population of Ohio or wherever in peace? That's a very funny question, and I would love to learn the answer to it. I mean, if those pteranodons are just out in pterodactyl fuego, it could happen. My dad's calling time. I, I, I actually, I have a strong feeling. I, I have a strong opinion on this one. I think the answer is yes. And what makes Carl Sauron is his insecurity and his lifelong desire to be special. And that there's probably some guy in Chile right now just going about his business who got bitten by those uh, mutant pterodactyls uh, 30 years ago. And, and nobody knows it. Because he's just dealing with it because he's not a weirdo. Yeah. That's what I think. Question two, has Sauron ever actually explained his origin to anyone? I can't recall anyone responding to the being bitten by random Antarctic pterodactyl story on panel. They see this terrible guy turn into a half pterodactyl and no one asks any questions because they all just want to move on. Like a friend of a friend you think is shitty, so you keep your distance. Or an obnoxious guy on the train during your commute. Sometimes you just have to deal with the half pterodactyl. Love the pod. Thank you for giving us so many hours of enjoyment while celebrating these wonderfully bizarre and beloved characters. Thank you, Justin. So you just reread all of this. Does he ever explain it to people? I feel like he kind of does in the 70s. They recap the origin. He, he does. First of all, he explains it in the Marvel fanfare number four at the end. And that's why Charles is able to treat it. And Charles actually says, well, you know, you didn't get bit. And that's why you, Tanya, are not a right pterodactyl vampire or <laughs> you know i mean weradactyl sounds so much better than tyranno weradactyl is so he's good more of a vampire than a werewolf he star. is but his name is dr lycos which is obviously supposed to suggest lycanthropy right so right. he's kind of both he's kind of both because that's just greek for wolf but yeah but that being said i mean i i, I do think yeah he he definitely uh told xavier and the gang and um they just went with it yeah yeah weirder things happen in their neighborhood exactly these are related questions so i'm going to read both of them because i liked them both and i couldn't decide which one to do william hayworth writes screech greetings connor and connor's dad so excited to learn more about this flappy boy my question is about the ex-villains that don't fit it seems to be the most excellent antagonists are in some way about the mutant metaphor even foes like the brood and the demons of limbo take the world hates mutants concept and blow it up to a cosmic scale on some level they all kind of play into the theme and inform the overall narrative carl i don't want to cure cancer lycos doesn't really seem to evoke the larger themes of mutantum and yet our squawking pal seems to keep on coming back to threaten the x-men what do you feel soran is providing to the overall x tapestry and then harini marchati writes hello connor and james when i first encountered soran during my claremont read through my immediate thought was to wonder why this weird pterodactyl man was an x-men villain most x-men villains represent either a direct threat to mutant kind like bolivar trask or an alternate viewpoint on the political question of mutants like apocalypse soran on the other hand is just a man who keeps turning himself into a pterodactyl. Why has this character stuck around as mostly an ex-villain? Honestly, why has the Savage Land stuck around as a location for the X-Men in general? What is it about dinosaurs and pterodactyls, which are apparently not dinosaurs? Taxonomy is weird. That just seem to scream X-Men. Thanks, Harini. So I liked both those questions because it is absolutely true that this character is completely out of whack with most of the X-Men's stuff. Dad, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, my thoughts are that... Um... He, like uh, Juggernaut, mm -hmm. was a very successful character from the 60s run. Yes. 
before the mutant thing was really established by Claremont. The metaphor was not, I, I, there were, in order to do the Sentinel stories, uh, which obviously were right by the most popular stories, they did get into the idea of people being bigoted against mutants. But the marginalization metaphor, honestly, that's Claremont. It doesn't exist really in the Lee Kirby stuff. And I think what happened is you have two villains who don't fit into that at all in Juggernaut and Carl. They just liked them because they were cool. They're just grandfathered in because they're the successful villains from that X-Men Silver Age stuff. And you've mentioned this on the pod, but I've talked to you. It is fascinating to me now, looking back, that I missed the obvious parallels with the LGBTQ experience Mm -hmm. when I read these. In my reading of X-Men in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I would have told you until they started having characters come out. Juggernaut and Tom were a couple. Right. Mystique and Destiny were a couple. And I never gave much thought about anyone else. You know, the idea that there (laughs) were all these subtexts about um, uh, women being bisexual. It all went over my head. I think he made Juggernaut gay to sort of pull him into the whole idea of, I mean, it works beautifully that Juggernaut's gay. I mean, it's incredibly good. I will tell you. I remember reading those comic books and remember I loved Juggernaut when I was a kid because he, his whole raison d'etre was to kill his brother because and his name's Kane and he's all right. upset and all he wants to do is kill his brother. Not just Kane, but Kane Marco. It's yeah. very it's very overt. <laughs> and you know what I really loved when that wrinkle was added, and I remember this, is that ah. Now, see, and that was a pretty, you know, you couldn't have gay heroes in right. pop culture stuff aimed at children. And you just couldn't. Right. I mean, but I, Juggernaut and Black Tom are very clearly a couple and you can do that because they're bad guys. And it was common in pop culture in the 70s and 80s to make a villain gay in order to make him more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, he's dealing with some stuff. Well, it explains his hyper-masculine craziness. Yeah, also he's hyper-masculine. So the whole idea of this giant guy's gay, okay, well, that makes sense Because he's overcompensating. Like, we get his whole attitude now. And it also makes sense. And why is he so mad at his brother? And it might be that he feels like his father, Charles' stepfather, would have disapproved of his sexuality. Yeah, and that's that my reading. angry that he's lashing out at Charles. Because Mm -hmm. he's never been comfortable with how his father would have felt about him if he had known who he truly was. And I actually thought that made Juggernaut, Juggernaut's one of my favorite characters. And that's one of the reasons is that, you know, that I I thought he's got a lot going on. And, you know, all this stuff, I mean, his dad, his mom's dad, his dad dies when he's a kid and he's carrying around a lot of anger. That's partly his fault. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. a whole thing. Yeah. There was a great bit in the issue that came out today. It's a surveillance tape that we get to read a transcript of. And it's just Kane and Tom having like a drunk conversation. And Tom is upset because, and this is an in-joke, it's a reference to Newsarama, which is a comics news website 
there was like a clickbait article when Black Tom popped up in X-Force for the first time that was like, is this Dracula on Krakoa? And Jordan D. White had to be like, no, that's Black Tom Cassidy. He's a very established X-Men character. <laughs> and so this page is Kane comforting Tom because Tom's like, sometimes people think I'm Dracula and it hurts me feelings. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and Kane's like, who the fuck said that? I'll fucking kill him. And it's great. Uh, it's uh, that's great, great. I, I will it's say, I, 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 I was just I, like, Kane I is the best Dracula. husband. Yeah. But uh, I will say too, I liked in the siren episode when you were, when you were talking about, you know, raised by a, 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 yeah. a couple and that, you know, you'd like to see Uncle Kane and Siren sort of talking things over. And I think mm -hmm. that would be really nice because I It'd think be great. that is a special relationship when it exists. And, you know, being the, the partner of someone who's raising a kid, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of parenting experience, right? Yeah, it's, being the know, stepdad basically yeah. is different. But, Getting back to the original question, I think the reason that Sauron has endured, even though he doesn't fit in with the X-Men narrative or story, is because Sauron is awesome. He's a, he's a dinosaur <laughs> man in pants. And I can't stress enough how important it is to have a dinosaur man in pants in your franchise. You lose that guy, you are you are really making a bad, bad choice. I fully agree. I also think the reason why the Savage Land endures as an X-Men setting is because, A, like, they go there in X-Men 10 and meet Kazar and all of that. So, like, Kazar's first appearance is in that issue. There is a close tie between, like, the Kazar franchise and the X-Men franchise, essentially. But also... It's just fun to throw the X-Men into a dinosaur jungle, the same way that it's fun to throw the X-Men into space or it's fun to throw the X-Men into limbo. These characters who have such personal grounded problems related to hard-hitting marginalization metaphor and whatnot, like sometimes it is fun to take them out of that context of American politics or even like Earth politics and just throw them into a completely alien scenario. And so I think that that, it's a good breather story that any writer can do is like let's do an arc in the savage land it's like a palate cleanser it'll be fun i also think claremont loved zaladane who was a jerry conway and barry windsor smith character he used her a bunch and he thought she was fun and i bet it's because of her like witchy coolness that's like very claremonty and i bet that that was another reason that they went back to the savage land a couple times so I think at this point they're connected because they are the same way that the Shi'ar and the X-Men are connected, even though the Shi'ar don't really have anything to do with the mutant metaphor. And I love that for the X-Men and for the Savage Land. I think that we should all encounter dinosaurs more, frankly. Adam Cullion writes, Hello, Messieurs Goldsmith. Happy Thanksgiving. I have a question, not about Sauron, but in the spirit of Sauron. If you were to become a dinotastic energy vampire, but could choose which dinosaur or prehistoric animal bit you, which would you choose to do so? Can't wait to hear your discussion. Absolutely love everything about the podcast. Thank you for your hard work. Dad, what kind of were dinosaur would you want to be? Triceratops. Why is that? Unpack that for me. Love Triceratopses. Love them. Just love them? Just love them. Actually, in that um, turning people into dinosaurs, Spider-Man and the X-Men, they turn um, a Glob. Glob Herman, yeah. Into uh, a, a Triceratops, and he's adorable, right? I mean, that's that's actually, that's a quote. That's another good line. And that's another good line. Sauron says, quote, thought he'd be not 
quite so adorable, end quote. And it's a big disappointment. It's like the failure of their plan. They turned him into a, an adorable dinosaur and none of the kids want to change him back. And it's like, we right. Change yeah. Him back hmm. himself, you know, he's just, I don't care how good he is. But uh, Triceratops is rule. For the listeners, by the way, if you enjoy my need to read things aloud and do voices and whatnot, that literally just is my dad reading us stories when I was a kid. Well, you know, it it was funny hearing you on the page uh, on the uh, the Patreon because you were doing the Zaladane things. I said, "Oh my God, this is it's this is nineteen literally yeah this is nineteen ninety five. It's you, you doing bedtime stories, bedtime stories to you and your brother. Although your voices are better, mine were a little." less the effort was there oh yeah yeah no you were always characterizing people i think that there was a little bit less variety to them but it was fine you know i am not a uh, performer as you know i'm not I, you have I performed I lack your part you have performed you've been on the I stage have. you were in the hasty pudding back in the day i was indeed Harvard. i was indeed yep yep my dad presented the hasty pudding woman of the year award to ella fitzgerald and she sang, I've got a crush on you to me. And when she died, that clip was on and I, a bunch of people called me up and said, you have like a kid who goes to Harvard? I said, nah, was it like a 25 That's just a long time yeah. ago, yeah. <laughs> no, you do not have a kid who goes to Harvard. Although my sister is, of course, now doing her residency at Beth Israel, so I guess. She's a Harvard fellow. She is a Harvard fellow. Fine. Fine. She just has to fucking do every time. Every time. I'm like, you're six years younger than me. There's no need for all this showboating, young lady. <laughs> anyway. Kenny Ware writes, first I have to say your show's the highlight of my week every week. It's somehow become my favorite X-Men podcast. I also want to thank your father for being on the show and for creating you. He's already a legend and I can't wait to hear his unique take on the characters. My question is about Jerry Duggan's X-Men Unlimited story. As of October 27th, it looks like Sauron has joined Nature Girl's X-Men Green Team. I absolutely love this story and I'd love to know who else you would add to the team. Thank you again for an amazing experience every week. That's a great question. I'll take that because I know dad is like not a super up on the contemporary comics. Unless you have thoughts, dad, feel free to jump in. My only thought is that I think that Black Tom and Juggernaut would be nice for this team because. Oh, that would be fun. Because he's a plant dude, you know, and he's in yeah. turning into a plant. He just occupies a pretty significant role on Krakoa right oh, now. Well, then, like being their he's plant dude. Important. He's probably too yeah. important. Yeah. I think that it would be fun to pull in i mean first of all i want to pull in black mamba they should just buy out her contract because i want her and sauron to actually like go on a date i think that would be fun but i also think that the thing about sauron that is fun in this moment is that because he's not a mutant he doesn't have to be caught up in all the krakoa stuff so i think that it would be nice to maybe throw in other x-men villains who are like adjacent to that like she wouldn't be on the team but it would be fun to see them tangle with lady deathstrike what's she up to like the characters who have been less emphasized in the krakoa era because they're not mutants like sauron it's always exciting to see them again so it would be fun to see him tangling with them or to see some of them join up. I feel like, you know who I bet would be down with X-Men Green and their mission is Gateway. 
like he's on Krakoa, but he's like kind of mysterious and always doing his own thing. And he loves to like help a little girl do stuff. Like he was mentoring the Monet twins. I just think he would be into what nature, like his whole like dream time thing. Like I feel like he'd be into like, let's save the planet. And you could finally characterize him a little bit. He's always just kind of been a plot device. So I think that would be a fun because he is a real classic X-Men character who has never really gotten his due in my opinion. So that would be fun. And you could have nature girl, Oh my gosh, the X-Men Green team could set up their new like base of operations in the outback where the X-Men used to be. That base is abandoned. You could do a whole thing there. Just a thought. Jerry, if you do that, I won't sue. Anyway, Chuck Marsh writes, this is more of just a comment that he had because his question was sort of something we'd already read, but I loved this bit, so I just wanted to read it. I'm super stoked for this episode. We've heard so much about Mr. Goldsmith just in passing, and it's always been great stories that make me laugh. As a married flat scan, I've never felt more seen than when Connor described his parents' relationship as my mother is a powerful cosmic being and my father is happy to clap for her. And I just, I love that quote from when I was talking about Scott and Jean. And it reiterates sort of what you were saying about why you love Cyclops' arc so much. 100%. Yeah, I mean, 100%. Jesse Adkins writes, Hi, Connor and Mr. Goldsmith. I'm so excited for this episode where we finally get to hear from the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Goldsmith himself. My main question today revolves around collecting comics. What was it like collecting so many issues of X-Men over the years? And is it any different than today? How do you preserve and store your collection? I've been collecting comics for about 12 years now, and I want to make sure these objects I care a lot about will be protected from the ravages of time. Thanks, as always, for the great pod, Jesse Adkins. Well, I'll, I, I'll try not to, to go too long on that. The experience of collecting comic books, first of all, I didn't start out really caring that much about getting high-grade copies of comic books. I cared about getting things I loved. I would say around 1990, I started thinking, you know, some of these, I mean, it was a, it, it was a, a bubble in the market that I think had been caused by a Superman story, Death of Superman or something. The Louise Simonson Death of Superman, yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, some of the some of the, my favorites, I should get really nice copies of them. It was hard to get nice copies of the Marvel comics at the time because the Gaines file copies, which are these beautiful... Bill Gaines used to save six to 12 copies of each of his comic books that he brought out from 1947 to 1955 and put them in a vault and they were preserved beautifully. They were under good temperature control and they hit the market a little before the time when third party grading started. But when I started collecting comic books and trying to collect nice copies, I focused on the period that I had loved when I was a kid on the X-Men. You know, that was good because they, they weren't terribly expensive. I didn't want to feel like I was wasting money. I went in 1990 or 1991 to a very, uh, to a fine uh, store, still a fine store in Manhattan. I plunked down a couple hundred bucks for what was sold to me as a near mint minus uh, giant size X-Men. And I kept that. I, I, I bought a, a bunch of other things from around that period that I knew were valued that way. But the thing is, because there was no objective third-party grading, you didn't always know what you were going to get. There was a bubble in 95, and then people thought people weren't going to be collecting comic books again. 
but I kept collecting comic books because, of course, the comic books I wanted had gotten cheaper. Uh, and so I still bought nice copies. And then there was sort of a real sea change around 2002. And in 2002, first you could go to the uh, the CGC and get your comics uh, valued and then slabbed. And slabbing really does a good job of preserving them. I have comic books that, frankly, uh, to avoid having people desire to steal them, live at a lawyer's office. But for the ones, but I love the ones that are not worth that much. And uh, in terms of how I store them, something I really love is slabbed and is stored either in cedar uh, or in uh, boxes that basically plastic storage cases for slabbed comics that I um, uh, keep in a temperature controlled place, not unlike a wine cellar. Many of the comic books I have, even though I love them, you know, at a certain point, I did decide that, you know, I wanted to, um, you know, I had to get things insured, that I wanted to uh, uh, pass these on to my children. I guess I'll leave the X-Men comics to Connor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's not really the guts of my collection. The guts of my collection is EC stuff. And the way I approached it was once the games filed copies were all slabbed, it became relatively easy to go after the ones you wanted. And there are dealers and auction houses who, if they know who you are, will reach out to you and say, you know, I just got, like I told you about that uh, hours ago, I mentioned that magnificent story that Harvey Kurtzman did in 51 in, in Frontline Combat number five. And, you know, I have uh, a couple of, you know, 9.8 slab uh, Frontline Combat number fives. My only advice to people about collecting comics is don't do it to make money and uh, collect things that you love. And, you know, if you want to get nice comics, get nice versions of the ones that you have reading copies sitting in your uh, in your attic. Uh, and, and then don't think about them much and, just, you know, take them out every once in a while from the slab and take a look at them. How is it different uh, there? I think people have gotten used to the bubbles. There's a huge bubble going on right now. I mean, it is a great time to sell your comic book collection if you want to make money off of it because people are paying insane amounts of money for comic books since the pandemic started. I don't know why. Collecting comics is a fun hobby. I told you how I store them. And, you know, it's changed in that I think people have uh, learned to ride out the bubbles more. Well, thank you for sharing your expertise. Jacob Kalanko writes, Hi, Connor, an esteemed father. I love that two people made that joke. The two of you have a pretty unique experience that you both have such an extensive knowledge of the X-Men. Because of generational differences and Connor being, you know, manicure emoji, you both got very different readings of the text and got to discuss them. That's so incredibly cool. So here's my question, eh? Mr. Goldsmith, what's one of the wildest readings Connor's told you about the X-Men that very much clicked once you heard it and made sense for you once he said it? And for Connor, were there any particular viewpoints on characters your dad has that you think colored your initial readings of characters? Thanks again for such a wonderful podcast. It's been great learning about all these little corners of the X-Universe like Candy Southern. And I hope we get a Lockheed episode one day. He's a very good boy and deserves the airtime. Make mine Cerebro, Jacob with a K. I am. Um, I don't think it's things that you told me, but things that I've heard on this podcast that really clicked for me. I will tell you, um, it was the guy named Jay who did the uh, Cyclops episode. Jay added in, yeah. Identifying him as on the spectrum absolutely clicks for me. It would never have occurred to me. I think that works really well because I do think people on the spectrum develop in different ways. 
not to put too fine an edge on it. I have obsessive compulsive disorder Mm -hmm. and I've never been diagnosed as being on the spectrum, but I think I am. Yeah, I mean, on, we we all think, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, th- um, we all think you are, yeah. You know, it's very different, and but I do think that what I was fascinated by was you find ways to cope with your limitations. I, for example, I have trouble reading people's facial expressions. Everybody, unless they're delighted, looks a little bit angry at me, and when I'm insecure, I'm worried they're angry at me. And what I learned from that was just as I leaned into my obsessions in productive ways, you know, I sort of tried to avoid negative obsessive behavior and run to positive obsessive behavior. Similarly, I learned not to rely on my ability to read people. And I found that very helpful at work. So I loved that spin. I'd never heard it. And I really really liked it. It clicked for me. I also liked, I didn't really read the, I don't know what to call it. I don't want to use the wrong term, but the disability metaphor, the idea that people, mm-hmm. I think that works in many ways, even better. You know, the, as a lot of your guests have said, uh, the racial metaphor doesn't work particularly well for me. Why do some white people have problems with black people in America, usually because of centuries of oppression? not because they just showed up. Right, not because they're new and have yeah. superpowers. I thought the LGBT me- metaphor worked worked better, but is more obvious. The developmental disorder stuff and the um, the disability metaphor were really, really interesting to me, and they were not things that had occurred to me ever when I was reading that stuff. As for me, I think that... I was always more inclined to give Cyclops the benefit of the doubt, probably because I knew that my dad's favorite character was Cyclops. Like I was a storm guy as a kid for sure, but I could always see like the value in Cyclops. Cause like, that's my dad's favorite character. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of people are like, Oh, Cyclops is a drip or whatever. I never really had that feeling because I went into it with my dad gave me these and this is the character my dad likes you know so yeah. that was probably helpful because as we know I'm pretty hard on Scott and I think I would be a lot harder on him if I didn't have that Zach Wilson writes dear Mr. Goldsmith I hope you're both having a great day this is a very exciting episode and Connor for probably the millionth time thanks again for all your hard work on Cerebro the dust episode made me cry to the elder Mr. Goldsmith thanks for coming on today and for getting Connor into the X-Men in the first place now, on to the question. I've heard the story of the Comics Code Authority being the thing that made Sauron a were-pterodactyl as opposed to a regular old wolf or whatever, though I might be misremembering. I'd argue this was a good thing. Can either of you think of other instances in Marvel or otherwise where the Comics Code Authority actually led to a better, more interesting, or funnier story? Thanks again for the podcast and all of your hard work. Have a great day. I thought that was a fun question. That's a really good question. The Comic Code, I would say its greatest contribution to American humor was that the EC guys basically folded all of the comic books, held on to Mad, which was truly a work of genius, turned it into a magazine to be released from the Comics Code Authority and really right. changed humor in America. That might not have happened if they had continued with some of the lines that were really very profitable before the Comics Code Authority sort of cut their legs out from under them. I also think that in general, the way that the Comics Code Authority put all kinds of restrictions on what you could write 
meant that Kirby and Lee and whoever else was responsible for creating those things, they figured out things that they could like that adolescents would respond to. They were able to show insecurities in their characters that they ran with. And I think that really worked out well uh, over the course of the 60s in kind of perking up the comic book business and, and the quality of the comic books. Mm -hmm. This isn't the Comics Code Authority. It's more like standards and practices or whatever. But I do think that for all that I rag on Shooter about the X Factor stuff, the order from on high that morally speaking, Jean Grey had to be punished and therefore had to die at the end of the Dark Phoenix saga is responsible for the X-Men becoming a truly great comic rather than just a very good comic. And I don't think we would have that without that editorial insistence. So I'm glad that we do. I think also this came up on the North Star episode, but the fact that they wouldn't let Mantlo out North Star means that North Star didn't die of AIDS in the 80s. And we still have that character. And I think that was probably for the best as well. Those are two that sort of come to mind for me. I also think like this was a direct response to Seduction of the Innocent, the introduction of the Batwoman and Batgirl characters in the Batman franchise, which were intended to make it less gay. First of all, didn't succeed in making it less gay. So there's that <laughs> to the point where Batwoman's a lesbian now. So, you know, there's something funny about that. I mean, it's not the same character, but it's her niece or whatever. I think that those characters, while Kathy Kane and Betty Kane were not the most enduring characters themselves, they paved the way for Barbara Gordon and Kate Kane, who I think are great and obviously are huge characters. So that was a case where, uh-oh, this comic needs to meet Comics Code Authority standards because we're all freaked out now because Frederick Wortham got us pulled before Congress. That, I think, is a, a positive silver lining to that whole cloud. It's like how the Hollywood blacklist is one of the most horrible things that's ever happened to arts in this country, but the way that the blacklisted artists found ways to maneuver around it produced a lot of great art. Joshua Federson writes, Dear Connor and Mr. Goldsmith, I want you both to know how much Connor's podcast has meant to me and I'm sure many others during the last year. He's created a wonderful community and provided much-needed regular humor. The Ladies Mastermind episode rivals anything I've watched or listened to in a long time. Thank you, that's very sweet. I've always found a lot of comfort in the way Connor speaks of your relationship. As both the son of a lawyer and myself, a Buffalo Bills-loving Jewish Harvard Law School lawyer with a son, I identify with both of you. In particular, I identify with letting a child pick up material at too young an age and feel better with having so few limits for my own parenting. Let's just say my version of the Hellfire Club was discussing Heretics of Dune with my then 11-year-old. Anyway, I could go on, but I wanted to ask James a question. How did he react when Jewish characters were firmly introduced in the books? For me, and I'm guessing for Connor, Kitty always existed and Magneto was always a Holocaust survivor. But for you, that came as a change when the subtext in a lot of comics became text. There were actually Jewish characters instead of the mutants being a metaphor or hints to Ben Grimm's religion. All that said, my question is what your reaction was as a young person to seeing that change. I also wanted to know what on earth is wrong with the bills if Connor will let you answer best, Josh. <laughs> I love that question. First of all, it's very kind of him to say those things. Second of all, my reaction to it was I thought it was really good because they were trying to play with the metaphor. And I never thought, for the reason I said before, I, I just never bought it 
as a good racial metaphor because well you were watching the actual civil rights yeah you know it, it just didn't work for me at all because again people of color were minorities in this country because a lot of bad people enslaved them and then oppressed them for hundreds of years and so to the extent you're bigoted against them what you're doing is you're you're saying my ancestors did something horrible to other people's ancestors i don't like how i feel about that or i don't like you know right and that just seems well you're just wrong. I thought the 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 metaphor of an oppressed group that had sort of just always been oppressed in lots of different places worked really well for the mutants. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it was a stroke of genius to make. I, they didn't say he was Jewish, but I always assumed he was Jewish, you know, from the moment that we found out about the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty clear. I, I thought that worked really well. I thought it was interesting that Kitty was Jewish, but not not as interesting as making Magneto Jewish. I, I thought that really... I think that was the most genius of Claremont's twist to existing characters from the agree with age. that. Especially, I think he did a really good job of handling it because it's, mm-hmm. you know, potentially explosive idea. To do that with the villain, yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah. a mass... I mean, that's why there's all the ridiculousness with all the retcons in the 90s of, like, what his ethnicity actually is because Marvel got nervous about it. Yeah, but I, I I have to say, I, you know, these were Jewish creators. Yeah. You know, I, I I liked the fact that they went in that direction. I thought it was interesting. I thought it made the comic book a lot more interesting than it would have been if they had tried. I, I felt that sometimes when Kitty first appeared and, you know, there's those unfortunate yeah. exchanges, but I thought they oversimplified race relations in the United States. I think the character who spoke to that, apart from Storm, obviously, most effectively in the older material was Nightcrawler because he's physically marked in this way where like he has a different skin color. People react to him visually in a different way. I just think when it's like you look at the 60s story and it's just these white kids from New York, it doesn't quite scan, you know? Now just some rapid fire questions. Oh, no, 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 no. What's wrong with the bills is we had... I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you three sentences. What is wrong with the bills? We had unnecessary, we had unreasonably high expectations. Our running game is flawed and our backup guards are not particularly good. There you have it. Patrick Talbot writes, do you think Sauron would be willing to let Dracula bite him to become a double vampire for the drama of it all? Would he then have fangs in Tyranidon form or just when he's back in Carl Lyko's form? What do you think about that, Dad? I love this concept. Uh, I think that he would not because he would not want to give up being able to fly around in the daytime. Great point. He loves a daytime soar through the Savage Land. But I mean, I do believe he would insist on having um, vampire fangs as a pterodactyl as well. Absolutely. But I don't think he'd go for it because of the whole daytime thing. No, you're right. The daytime's key. I mean, listen, Zaldane, Queen of the Sun people, the Sun people are a whole thing in the Savage mm, Land. Yeah. Like, you gotta, yeah. they're all, they worship the Sun in the Savage Land. You really gotta be. I think he'd like the, the accessories. You know, I think he'd like the fangs. And he liked the cape. I, I told you. Yeah, I was gonna cape. say, he should wear like a cute vampire outfit sometimes, I think. Yeah. But I don't think he should actually become a creature of the night. Sauron is the single uh, X Men figure who would make the best plush toy. That is 100% true. Yeah. There are others, but that's the best one. Yeah. He would be a perfect plus toy. 
David Welsh writes, you know I love the pods, so I'll get right to the point. Who would win in an eating contest, Sauron or Celine? Great question. Celine would win. We know that she can eat a million people at once because we saw her do it in Necrotia. So I'm sorry. There's just no way Carl's going to top that. But I'd love to see him try. I would love to see them just have an energy-sucking contest at some point. She'd eat him up. Yeah, I, I just him up. I mean, she's not... seventeen thousand years old, and he's just a pterodactyl. I don't I think mean, you know. Carl's at his best when he's paired again, when he's matched up against. I think he does really well against Wolverine. I think. Yeah, that that's works fun. Really, because well. you can't kill Wolverine, and Sauron's a scary vampire who flies around. It's good. Yeah, but these these powerful women uh, mutants in the in this the Claremont women just always just overwhelm him. For, he, Carl's not in there. He, 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 that's punching above his weight. If he touched Celine, I think his head would explode. Probably. You know? Yeah. So before we get to the last question, which I think is just a question for me, I just want to give two shout outs. So a lot of you had similar questions and I had to pick and choose, but two shout outs. First to Jim Roberts, who titled his Sauron Silver Girl, Sauron by with <laughs> Sauron, which I could hear in my head. I was like, Sauron Silver Girl, Sauron by. So I just wanted to, to, to honor that. And then I also just wanted to give a shout out to Eugenia Montserrat Pinson Balam, who has one of the coolest names I've ever seen in my entire life. So thank you for writing in from Mexico, Eugenia. We covered a lot of stuff this episode and I couldn't read everybody's questions, but I just wanted to say your name rules. Last question. Mike Chu writes, is Sauron hot? Please address each form individually. Here's what I will say. John Burns, Carl Lycos in his little loincloth in the Savage Land with his big heaving hairy pecs is enormously hot. I'm into it. I get it, Tanya. Go get that man out of the dinosaur jungle. I'm all about it. Personally, I am not into pterodactyl Sauron, but if you are, listener, I want you to follow your bliss. Sauron deserves love like anybody else. Do know, though, that canonically he is sapiosexual, so you will need to impress him with feats of intellect. I would just like to say that Sauron as a dinosaur, when he makes the kissy lips to try and kiss Shark Girl, I find off-putting. I find him not, not great, hot but at that I do feel like he probably throws fantastic Tyranna dick because you know Zaladane is not going to tolerate a weak stroke game from a man she's going to seat on a throne with her on a dais in Marvel fanfare. Fair enough. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. I'm not personally feeling the beat kisses, but I think that we can infer from his implied sexual relationship with Zaladane that he is great in bed, even as a pterodactyl. Yeah, and in fairness, that's a one-off. You know, maybe yeah. you could retcon his lips to be left less off, but and maybe other people would not find his lips as off-putting as I did. Shark Girl found them very off-putting. Maybe it was just the art style, you know? Yeah. You never know. Yeah. And I also, I choose to believe that he didn't realize that Shark Girl was a teenager, because she was a big shark. How was he supposed to know? You know, because he was a school teacher in his last not story, at her and she was school. a student. Was she at the Hellfire Academy? No, right. But that's what he I'm saying. Known who the other kids were? Probably. I'm trying to. I'm trying to make it work here because that story is otherwise so. Flawless. Also, he knows she's a schoolgirl because he has co-opted her. 
she's gone oh, under, yeah, right, uh, right. underground because no, you're right. You're right, you're right, you're right no, no, no. Right, no. Right, Carl, right. honestly, no, it's bad. It's bad. Carl, that's bad. Naughty. Sorry. Bad. I'm going to assume she's 18, but it's still very naughty. And it, it, I don't. That, it, I don't. You approve. know, I'm not cutting any slack on this one. I'm just not. Yeah, I yeah. don't approve of that. Well, Dad, is there anything else you'd like to say about Sauron or just in general before we start to wrap up? Uh, just that he's great, and uh, I I hope he has a good career as an Echo Terrorist. And I, for all the people who said, I'm really looking forward to this episode, I hope it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was great, and that's what matters, because I'm the one who has to sit and listen to four hours of raw audio to edit it. So Good point. Thank you for joining me. I know that this is a little outside your typical wheelhouse, but the fans really have been asking for it since early in the run of the show. And I thought it would be a fun Thanksgiving themed ep. December is on the horizon and I am excited if you have made it this far into the episode to announce the slate that is coming up. So we still have the Valerie Cooper episode with Patrick Sullivan coming and then the episodes that are going to round out 2021 on Cerebro are... Ash Elaine, host of the X of Words podcast, will be joining me to talk about David Elaine, no relation, the Academy X character Prodigy, who then became one of the Young Avengers and more recently a member of X Factor Investigations on Krakoa. Then Anthony Oliveira will be returning to the pod to talk about Benet de Paris Exodus, another really weird, really gay 90s villain who you may now recognize as a member of the Quiet Council on Krakoa. That's going to be a lot of fun. I am furious that Tony made me read more 90s comics, but I'm really excited about that one. And then for Christmas, because Exodus is to set up Christmas, right? But then the big Christmas spectacular... Zach Jenkins of Comics XF and Battle of the Atom joins me to dig deep on Nate Gray, the alternate cable from the Age of Apocalypse, who then came here to 616, not here, but there, you get what I'm saying, to the main storyline, became X-Man, and then eventually became Mutant Jesus, and lots of weird bad shit happened. We'll get into it. That's going to wrap us up for the holidays. I am now opening questions on all of those characters. So if you have them, send them my way. Excited to get them. I read a lot of questions on this episode because I wanted to just hang with my dad, but I am going to be cutting the questions down somewhat. So please don't be offended if I don't read yours in future episodes. Dad, you don't have anything to plug, really. You mostly just like golf. and I just exist. I, I am a lily of the field. I do have something to plug, I've decided. Okay. I want to plug your friend Spencer's book. I just read your friend Spencer's oh, book. Yeah. Uh, Reign of Spencer Terror. Ackerman, friend of the pod, Reign of Terror. And I must tell you, I thought it was tremendous. Uh, I thought it was incredibly well-written. I am a huge footnote fan, and he buries really cool stuff in his footnotes from time to time, which I always appreciate. And what I like most about it is he says in his afterward, it's a challenge writing about, he's basically written a, a, a history book but he's not a historian, he's a journalist. And he said he's covering the last 20 years, which is a period that is too new for something along the lines, I'm not exact quote, he put it better, but too young for history and too old for journalism. And I thought he did a fantastic job doing it. 
Well, thanks, Dad. You can follow my dad on Twitter at. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you could actually. I, I, I respond uh, you to could. You I mean, it exists. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't really use it very much, but he's at James Goldsmith nine, uh, yeah. the number nine. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, etc. at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast for $5 a month at the House of Zaladin tier. You can get exclusive secret files, bonus episodes. You also get an ad-free experience an mp3 ad-free version of every episode uploaded as soon as they go out right now the ad situation is a little in flux but come january there are definitely going to be ads on this podcast so if you want an ad-free version thank you so much for all your support i can't believe that we're about to wrap the year it's only been a little over one year of the podcast but it will be the second new year's i'm going to be experiencing as a podcaster so that feels pretty wild I can't believe all that this show has brought into my life and I look forward to doing more of it for and with all of you. So thank you for listening. And until next time, happy Thanksgiving or, you know, not if you're not American, but you get what I'm saying. And bye. Bye. Thank you, dad. This was great. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. 